Warning, this episode covers films that depict disturbing acts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. To avoid feigning, keep repeating. It's It's only only a podcast. podcast. Only a podcast. Only a podcast. Only a podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as convicts, cannibals, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. All right, guys, we're back. Uh, I guess it's been two weeks for you all. It's been like a few days for Josh and I. Yeah. We're trying to get caught back up <laughs> on recording, so. Yeah, baby steps. <laughs> The last one was fun, though. I got to watch something I've been meaning to watch for a long time and be disappointed by the sequel. So it's like my favorite <laughs> pastime. It had to be fitting, right? I actually went back and rewatched pretty much all of them when I was editing. And I like the second one a lot more the second time. Oh, okay. The first one is Eternal. I'm going to love that movie. Yeah. And the third one is Eternally Damned. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, to snag the audio clips for the recording out of that one, I couldn't remember where they were, and I essentially had to watch the whole movie to find two of the lines. <laughs> I hope that was worth it. <laughs> as long as it was funny. <laughs> I haven't seen anything cool since we recorded last because it's been, you know, days. Yeah, I haven't had time for anything other than cramming for this. I've had lack of sleep and uh, video games. Oh, so you have managed to get video games in there, though. Yeah, I squeeze <laughs> it in. I got to wait till I feed the baby like the late night bottle. Ah. And uh, watched more movies about rape than I'd like to admit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what we're about to talk about, it's discussed about an attraction to uh, reoccurring themes in novels. And um, I guess that was just one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these movies that we're going to talk about today are, are fucking dark. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not even really what I call horror movies. They're just fucking horrific. Yeah, and where where they were born from and what was happening in cinema at the time, it's fitting. It's kind of fucked up to go back on some of these in hindsight with the way things are now that violence or whatnot for the sake of violence or over-the-top gore and whatnot. It's like it loses its edge. And there's some some stuff in here from what was happening in, you know, early 70s and whatnot where it was like, dear God, you know, who would put this on the screen? Well, the person that would put that on the screen is... Wes Craven, the master of horror, who we're here to talk about today. Yep, and uh, I'm going to go into quite a bit of backstory on him because it's absolutely fascinating that he was not interested in film. So it's not like that arc that you usually have with a lot of these guys where it's like, oh, at a young age, this happened and that led to this film school, blah, 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 blah. And they're pretty short. This one, it's like an avoidance of that. And then by the time you get to his career, it harkens back to so much of this non-film shit. Of course, you know, Wesley Earl Craven, he was born August 2nd, 1939, and we lost him August 30th, 2015. Um, He was 76. I'm kind of going the David Copperfield route. I was born, I grew up. (laughs) It's crazy to me to think that he was 76 when he passed away, because I had seen an interview with him on TV not that long before he passed away, 
And he always just has like the kindest eyes and like this smirk and smile on his face. And to me, it always made him look more youthful than his age. Right. And it's just really hard for me to think this guy was almost fucking 80. Yeah. You know, looking over, it sucks because we don't get to say I'm excited to see what he does next because it's, it has a beginning and an end with this story. But uh, just looking back on his career, if you look at total box office for just his directing credits, it's only $560 million. And I say that just because we live in a day and age of the, the billion-dollar bullshit. And I bet most of those were Scream movies. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't have any blockbuster hits except for Scream. And Nightmare did really good for return on investment. Profit, <laughs> depending on, you know, what Bob Shea says or not, right? Yeah, yeah. Peter Locke pulled that shit, too. But God knows how much money um, has been made in the home video market. So it's not a good benchmark. Um, For me, he's going to forever be known for, quote unquote, scaring the shit out of people. Because so many interviews on camera and in print, I've heard this man say, does it scare the shit out of people? Or it's my job to scare the shit out of people. Just heard that so many times. And it's really strange because he really was not that much into horror. No. And he got stuck with it, basically. He did. And it wasn't until around the time of Shocker when he just said, fuck it. If I'm going to be the horror guy, I'm going to be the best horror guy I can be. It took a little while for him to get his footing on his new mindset. But uh, I can't believe it. it took him, what, like 30 years to make his like dream not horror movie? Oh, once he actually got in the business? Yeah. Yeah, because it was, it was towards the end. And uh, an odd pick. And... But it was because of Scream that he even got to do that. But looking back at, you know, 33 directing credits, 40 writing credits, and 26 producer credits. And of course, like we do on these, we're just going to do director. Going to run through quite a few movies here and when we get into that part. And a little bit of detail on some, not a lot of detail on others. Some of these I'm just going to mention because we're actually going to cover them either later on fully in this episode or the next episode. Because we did pick out a block of his films to go ahead and cover. Now, the obvious ones that you're not going to get this time, I think you mentioned on the bumper um, from the previous episode, is we already did Scream franchise. And you bet your ass we're going to do the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. So those are not going to get a lot of airtime on this episode. So uh, go back and catch Scream if you haven't. And uh, at some point later on down the road, we will do um, Nightmare on Elm Street. But as far as the legacy left behind, um, one thing that I found interesting that I didn't even catch until doing my research was... uh, Craven Madalena Films, which was his production outfit. And I'll explain how that came to be when we get to it. But they were responsible for Scream 2, Don't Look Down, his TV movie, Music of the Heart, Scream 3, Cursed, Red Eye, The Hills Have Eyes remake, The Waiting, Home, and Last House on the Left remake. So it wasn't just what he was writing and directing. He actually set up shop, so to speak. Unfortunately, there are Quite a few movies in there that I didn't like. Yeah. And then remakes. Yeah. And that's the thing is like um, his career really was peaks and valleys, it seems to me at least. And there's a few meds in there, but a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Well, it's just like, you know, talking about Masters of Horror, we're of course going to do John Carpenter at some point. I'm a huge Halloween fan. We all know that. Yeah. I prefer the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise over the Halloween franchise. I just think it's a better franchise. But just story-wise or? Yeah, I just think the it, it just kept going better, I feel yeah. like, than Halloween did. And Halloween like just kind of diverted so many ways. Now, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of did at the end as well. But I just, as a whole, I can rewatch that franchise. It's more fun to me to watch, you know, like people with fucking wizard powers and shit and their dreams fighting and, and stuff like that, right? Yeah. 
But as a director, I like John Carpenter's body of work a lot more than I like Wes Craven's. I got you. He did a lot of different kinds of horror movies in there. Yeah. And, and some non-horror. Non-horror. Yeah. And they, uh, they all just kind of stick out, stand the test of time and cult favorites. Whereas I feel like Wes Craven, you've got Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream. Yeah. All right, really? I mean, that's the big ones. That, yeah, that's definitely the big ones. And that's why we're going to go into some of these. But uh, we got to ask, how does one become a master of horror? There's a formula to it. A very simple formula. Grow up without an interest in film, become a failed author, and end up working in porn. <laughs> I can't sum it up any better than that. That's an interesting formula. This was not by design. <laughs> or was it? That's what's so fascinating about this to me. But um, so he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to a hardcore Bible-thumping Baptist family, like fundamentalist, Christian. I grew up in a pew-jumping family is what we were known as. And, you know, these were a little bit more subdued in their praise, <laughs> I guess. But um, he was raised on what he called the five cardinal no-nos. No drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no card games, and no movies. And I say card games and people go, what? Remember, he was born in 1939. Jesus, it's just crazy <laughs> to me to think of it like that. And he kind of had religion shoved down his throat. And there would be like evangelical pastors and sermons and stuff, fire and brimstone. And the people who don't believe in Jesus and don't want to be baptized and are non-believers, like that's what hell's for. And, you know, Craven, you know, was, was cited as saying, that's me. Like, I just, I don't, I'll tell my friends about a hamburger I ate in great detail, but I can't witness about, you know, the Lord and stuff. I just don't feel it, which is weird. I think anybody raised in the church, regardless of denomination, whatever, or, you know, however it is, you know, everybody grows up and finds their own footing. And, uh, I think part of what we see in his career is him actually still trying to deal with that, that and the loss of his father, which that happened at a very young age, didn't it? Yeah. And he was, his dad left the family when he was three and then died of a heart attack the next year. Yeah. So he was gone real quick. And uh, one thing I do want to mention is growing up, there was one caveat with the Cardinal No-Nos. He did get to watch Disney films. So were those his own personal Jesus tapes? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Seen some similarities here. So uh, <laughs> don't let me write. Actually, you know what? <laughs> You've been in enough bands with me. You <laughs> read some of my lyrics. So what ended up happening was mom would basically have this family, the Dalton family, watch them, you know, like after school and while she worked and shit. And uh, the father of the Dalton family was one of those weird early adopters who had an eight millimeter camera and filmed everything. And so he got exposed to a little bit there and uh, they would watch silent shorts that he'd rent from the local camera store, like uh, silent cartoons and like little snippets and maybe pieces of cereals and stuff like that. Because this would be the 40s, right? Yeah. But by the time he got to about age 15, he got a job at a library, just kind of fell into it. And it made him a very, very heavy reader. And he found himself being drawn to these recurring themes. And uh, one being recurring themes, uh, descents into hell to fight oneself, familiar relationships, and the duality of good and evil. So you can almost take all of his movies that he was a writer on and come right back to just that right there. There was something clicked with him in his brain right then. I mean, just like so many people with family problems at home, you know, growing up, you retreat into something, whether it's music, film, video games. This is the 40s and the 50s. He had books. Yeah. That was it. And, uh, you know, as much as through time people have had satanic panic for, for music or video games get banned and pulled off the shelves and video game rating systems get put in and there's, you know, 
it's illegal for a kid to see a rated R movie without a parent. As much as that stuff happened, books have always technically been worse for the most part or go way out there. Yep. And, uh, you know, you go to the library and you're just everything, everything's there. Right. Yep. And, and that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's a real interesting way to put it because the amount of censorship put on this household, but, oh, you can go read anything you want. Well, he went and read some dark shit. Um, but he was smart about it. He understood the bigger constructs of, of what he was diving into. So, uh, after high school, his mom tells him your brother, your older brother works at the phone company. He can get you in, go get a job. And, uh, he went to work as a cable splicer. <laughs> and, and I believe what he said was, so I'm out in a field, 30 feet up on a pole in 30 degree weather. And I realized I needed to go to college and I'm going to go ahead and just insert this right here. A lot of this in my research came from the book that I quote unquote read, Wes Craven, The Man and His Nightmares. But uh, it was mostly a collection of interviews and factoids. Just really good. That's where a lot of the stuff I got and a good read. And I say read, it was an audiobook. You, you all know I don't freaking read. But at any rate, um, he goes to his mom. His mom's totally supportive. Like nobody's gone to college, but we'll figure out a way to make it happen. And <laughs> He was an over-fucking-achiever. So he gets a double major in English and psychology from Wheaton College. Now, the five cardinal no-nos are still with him at this time because he goes to a fucking Christian college. And it's still, if they find out you've watched a movie, you're kicked out. It was around this time that he was also did dream studies. And he did coursework where part of what he was supposed to do was recognize when he was in a dream, wake up, and write it down. So that becomes very important, not just in shit that he wrote, but there's shit that he was working on that he says he literally had dreams about it while trying to work on it and would have a dream that he finished writing a screenplay and wake himself up and go, there's the rest of the screenplay and fucking write that shit. I saw lots of interviews with him where he would say, you just wake up in the middle of the night with an idea from a dream and just sit there and write a script for the rest of the night. And I didn't realize that was like a, a skill he learned in college. I just thought it was something he did. Yeah. Wild shit, man. But uh, it was his senior year in college where he decides to go see his first real movie. And he hitchhiked one town over so he <laughs> wouldn't get busted to see the film adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. So that kind of, I guess that made it accessible for him. And it wasn't like a life-changing experience or anything, but that was the first time he saw a real film. After college, he goes to John Hopkins University for a one-year master's degree. And he wrote a novel as his thesis. And that was his, the thing he was most psyched about. Because at this point, he's, I'm going to be an author. That's what I'm big into books. I love this shit. I'm going to write. And he wrote Noah's Ark, The Diary of a Madman. To this day, as far as I know, still unpublished. Um, but it told the story of three characters. But you end up discovering by the end of the story that they're all fragments of one schizophrenic character. Okay. So kind of fight clubby. Out of curiosity, is there a strong female character in the story that you know of? Um, I think it's three males. Okay. That are, that are the three personalities. Because he has a really strong theme of having a strong female character in his movies. Yeah. And I've, and I've wondered, it's really weird going back and thinking about his body of work after digging into the man some more. And one, there's two things that happen. One, there's real resentment for what his absent father was or how that affected him. And a more stronger female characters that I really think is, is respect to his mom and how she stayed with it. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I perceived it was that he held his mother on a very high pedestal and that kind of inspired him, you know, at least subconsciously to make these strong female characters. Yeah. 
That's like, uh, I mean, him and Joss Whedon, they both like to do that. You know, like that was a similarity I always noticed between the two of them. wonder what his backstory is on that. I know, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, Joss Whedon didn't just do strong female characters. Yeah. But, you know, like obviously Buffy is a yeah. big front, front runner there, right? Definitely. So. But uh, like most college students do, even though he had been in a Christian college and everything, he did some drugs. He did a little bit of experimenting and whatnot because um, there really wasn't much else to do. And uh, by this time, he pretty much full-on abandoned Christianity for spirituality. This was the 60s probably, right? Um, should be, like like early 60s. I think a lot of people did that back then. <laughs> yeah, because we're about to have the big boom of you know Vietnam, the flower power, and then after that, the summer of love and, and all that stuff, which— some say one of his films, that's what the whole thing was about. It was a repackaging, trying to cram that down people's throats. I don't agree. An interview I saw with him uh, while doing research for Last House on the Left, he said that like he wanted to, when he got the idea to to make something truly horrific, it was because like all the horrors he had seen from Vietnam yes. and things like that. So Vietnam definitely did play a part into this master of horror being molded. Yes, but I don't think, and that's that's just what I was alluding to. I don't think he wrote that movie as a protest of war, but I think parts of the movie and the symbology of the necklace versus the dress from the Virgin Spring was more of the death of freedom and innocence, so to speak. Yeah, that's basically what he was saying was like, there's so many horrific things going on out there and you just don't see it in film. Yeah. So here it is. So after this, he gets a job teaching at Clarkson College in New York and he gets married and, uh, it was around this time that he took an interest in art house films because he's like kind of in with counterculture and that kind of shit. And uh, he's seeing a lot of borderline exploitation shit coming over from Europe. And he's intrigued by it because he's like, this seems to say more. There's there's depth to this. It's not just a movie. And But he, he wasn't raised on movies. So he, he was figuring this out for himself real quick from a very sophisticated, smart point of view. And uh, sex and exploitation were prepping to break into the mainstream. Um, you got to remember, man, this is when like you went and saw porn at the porn theater fucking in New York down the street and shit. It's not like it is today. And uh, he went and purchased a 16 millimeter camera because he was so intrigued by this, had no idea what to do with it, didn't know how to barely knew how to run it. And some of his students discovered that he had it and asked if they could start a film club with him as their advisor. It's like, I don't fucking know what I'm doing, but we'll do it. Kind of like making a podcast. Yes. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, they shot a little film called The Searchers and a few other projects, and they showed them around town and even made money off of them. They were so uneducated. They were editing with scissors and scotch tape. <laughs> and I've actually done that in a movie theater before because <laughs> the splicer broke. Necessity is the mother of invention. I believe I saw him say they spent like $300 making the movies and they made three grand. Yeah. Which is crazy because it was like the 70s, right? That's a lot of fucking money yeah. in the 70s. Well, well, this is still the 60s. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but while this is going on, Craven's department chairman told him, he's like, you're fucking wasting your time. You need to be working on getting published and working on your fucking PhD. <laughs> and uh, he said, get your shit together or you're not going to be teaching here next year. And Craven goes, that's fine. I just won't be here next year. <laughs> and uh, this is what led him to teach in high school English for a little while just to pay the bills. His wife's putting up with all this shit, by the way. And I think by now they may already have two kids, maybe just one. So 68 rolls around. And not only has he been starting to pay more attention to film, um, he's starting to think this, I think I want to go this direction. And 
because he fucking tried to get published off of his thesis and it just never happened. He was still trying to do that through all this. And fucking Night of the Living Dead comes out and he saw it. And so I guess that was his first horror film because he talks about, you know, seeing exploitation films and more art house films that were coming from Europe. Nothing, nothing I've ever heard overtly mentioned that was horror until Night of the Living Dead. And he was like, holy shit, this has crazy shit in it, but there's so much message and meaning. It doesn't, you can actually make art and it can be horror. And he was fascinated by it. And that's what I was going to say. I, I think I mentioned that on the night of the episode. I think so. There is, I mean, that is a nice mix of art house and horror in Night of the Living Dead. And I don't even know if George Romero realized necessarily what he was doing. Actually, I know he didn't. Like when everybody always talks about how progressive he was having like a, a lead black character and this and that, he just was making a fucking movie. But yeah. it ended up actually being like this like historical piece of art. Yeah. There was a cultural change happening in America and, you know, race division and tension and all that, you know, that was surrounding that movie. And Craven really took a note of that because to an extent it seems like he was a bit of a bleeding heart but not like a hardline my party can beat up your party type person but like a, a classical liberal that really believed in fuck can't we all just be human and respect it so he takes a job as a messenger in new york but he it's in a building where they're making mostly documentaries and industrials and shit like that like a corporate sponsored fucking movies and shit and uh he's trying to make some contacts he quickly gets fired and then <laughs> takes a job. Yeah, he fucked up something or something and he gets fired. This story took a dive real fast. Well, this is what's crazy about it. He fucking starts driving a taxi. And it's like, this is the part where you give up, you know? And it's like, like, this is not working out. And his wife had enough and filed for divorce. And, you know, he had moved her and the family down to New York and everything. And it's like, what am I doing? Like, I, I was a professor. I fucked that up. Teaching college English. At least I was paying the bills and doing something with some credibility to my name. And now I'm fucking chasing this dream that I didn't even grow up wanting to chase. And, uh, out of curiosity, did he have children with both wives or just the first one? I only ran across mention of the two kids with the first wife. I know that one of his kids are in last house on the left. Oh, really? Yeah. He's oh, fucked. Did I not run across balloon that? boy? Is it Jonathan? I Jonathan so. Craven. Okay. He doesn't look that old. So that's why I was asking. I think it was just those two. I'm not sure. But uh, I put in my notes in here, time for a midlife crisis. And that's kind of what he did. He just kept mingling with hippies and exposing himself to more arts. Now, what was interesting was when he was teaching high school English. I'm pretty sure it was when it was high school English. It may have been when he was a college professional. I don't know. He was in a band with one of his students. And uh, the, uh, the student was Steve Chapin. He's like, if you ever go to New York, you got to look up my brother. And, uh, he does, he does film stuff like, you know, if that's, that's what you're going to do, you should go with him. So it was probably, I don't remember where it was. Anyways, the important part is he's like, well, fuck, I'm going to find his brother, Harry Chapin. That name's familiar to everybody. He's the guy who wrote fucking cats in the cradle. Okay. And, you know, wildly successful musician, but he worked in film first. And what's funny is there's a crossover between the Chapin family and the Craven family after that with the kids who actually ended up in a singing group together. Okay. And like all this other shit, but that's like a whole nother tangent. But at any rate, Craven gets with Harry and Harry taught him how to properly edit and how to sync up dailies. It's like, if you can sync up dailies, you can find work as far as being in New York. And that's what he did. It led to him doing just that mostly for documentaries. And 
real quick, this spins into him getting uncredited work on the 1971 film, You've Got to Walk It Like You Talk It or You'll Lose the Beat. That was written and directed by Peter Locke. So that name's fixing to come up a lot. And by this point, Craven's 31. He's 31 and he just now got his foot in the door. So that's one of the most fascinating things for me is such a late start in a career that like compared to some other people, it's a fucking short career. And once this guy gets running, he was just shitting out movies. Shortly after this, he got to work with Sean Cunningham on a picture called <laughs> Together Doing What? Sinking Dailies. And uh, Sean Cunningham's editor at the time was a guy named Roger Murphy. And they would get into fights all the time. And fucking Roger Murphy would storm off and Sean Cunningham would be like, Wes, you're here, edit this. And then after some time, Roger would come back and be like, get out of the way. And this would go back and forth until one point, fucking Roger left and never came back. And Sean Cunningham was like, I guess you're my editor. And uh, this it, was like a softcore porn movie, right? It was. It was uh, from what I was was finding in my research. Sean Cunningham was saying they were educational films. Like I don't remember if it was this one or one before it, where it's a narrator and a couple demonstrating different sex positions. But it was marketed as educational film. <laughs> um, there was a documentary I watched for Last House on the Left. And they were Cunningham was talking about this movie and they were showing clips. I don't know if the clips were necessarily from it, but it looked like it was just like naked women just like jumping and running around and stuff. Yeah. It made me think of uh, like girls on trampolines from the man show. <laughs> but if it was on Cinemax. Okay. So there was an, it was a jail cell. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, but this eventually led to uh, uh, Craven finishing the film with Cunningham and he even directed a shot. And this is where we get into quote unquote dark times. <laughs> so I'm not going to go into detail here, but Craven himself was quoted numerous times saying he worked in hardcore porn. <laughs> he had to pay the fucking bills. Which I didn't actually know this until I was doing research for slashers episodes back in episodes one through four, probably episode two. Yeah. And I was doing research on Cunningham for Friday the 13th and found out that he worked with Les Craven and they both worked on porn. And my mind was like, yeah. And it was as crazy, man. And there's going to be more, more porn names that come up, but, uh, he worked under pseudonyms and the consensus is that, uh, Abe snake, the director of the fireworks man, um, was really Wes Craven and not Peter Locke. Um, Peter, Peter Locke did a lot of porn. So what you're telling me is he didn't go by the name Craven Moorhead. He did not. That was a missed opportunity right there. And there's this huge rumor that he even worked on Deep Throat. There is a documentary that I don't remember the name of. I should have fucking <laughs> noted it. Jesus Christ, Josh. This is a quality fucking podcast. There's my weekly scolding from Jesse. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go look that up because I didn't want to say, oh, shit, I think he did because I haven't actually watched it. But given when it was and what how the shit was happening, because these motherfuckers were making movies, selling them to a couple of theaters, and that's it. There was no distribution and fucking there's no national release of pornography. And it wasn't until Deep Throat actually broke into major chains and you had fucking couples going there for dates and stuff. And it's like fucking, yeah, free love. And, you know, <laughs> that's just that's what was happening. The 60s changed some shit. It did. And this all, of course, leads up to Last House on the Left in 72 with Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham. Um, we will go into full details on that later in this episode. So after the success of Last House on the Left, Peter Locke 
pretty much just took Craven under his wing. And that's when they did more porn projects together. And he kept telling him over and over again. It's like, you need to do a sequel. You need to do a sequel. You need to do a sequel. Because let's face it, baby. These days, you gotta have a sequel. So that idea and Craven running out of money eventually led to The Hills Have Eyes with Locke as the producer. And so this is 77 and we have The Hills Have Eyes. And we're going to go into detail on that movie much more here later in the episode. But I do want to go ahead and say now that there's definitely some elements of that that you can feel were directly pulled from Last House. But uh, next year we have 78 and he does a TV movie called A Stranger in Our House. Go try looking it up. You won't find it. Um, (laughs) I was going to say the name's interesting. I might have to try to find that one. Well, it comes up as Summer of Fear. But in the book and in a lot of interviews, it's referred to as a stranger in our house. Like I said, it was a network TV movie. I'm really, I have no notes on the movie itself. I have important milestones in this man's career. I was actually shocked how many made for TV movies that he made doing research for this episode that I had no fucking clue. Same here, man. I had no idea. The important takeaways on this one was he worked with Linda Blair. Oh. It was his first time using 35 millimeter film. <laughs> it was his first time using a dolly. Jesus. <laughs> It was the first real movie he ever did as far as budget and crew goes. Number one, it got him into the Director's Guild. Okay. So all of a sudden shit starts flying in. The first project is this first blood movie. Rambo? Rambo. Very early on. Before Stallone came in and rewrote it and shit, it started off that Wes Craven was going to direct First Blood. I was fucking joking. (laughs) That's awesome. I know, right? That happens a couple times to him in his career. It does. And then right on the heels of that, in 81, he does, now this is writing and directing Deadly Blessing, which we're going to go into detail on on the next episode, followed up the very next year in 82 with writing and directing Swamp Thing, which is another one we will go into detail on in the next episode. Another thing that happens around this time is he starts working on this screenplay or script that would eventually become Nightmare on Elm Street. He actually worked on that one for quite a while, didn't he? Yep. And uh, we come back to, there's this recurring thing here with Craven runs out of money and Locke has an idea. <laughs> <laughs> so Craven was running out of money again and Peter Locke wanted to do uh, a sequel to The Hills Have Eyes, which you'll see different dates for release date for the sequel of 84 and 85. And that's because it was done in 84. The movie was finished and shelved. And what it was is it was basically a a screening cut where it's like, here's what we've got so far, the producers review, and then we take like eight days and we go back and we shoot a little bit more and we fill in the blanks. They never got to do that. And Craven was never happy with the movie. It was unfucking finished and people bitch about how there's flashback scenes with the dog and shit like that. And like half the cast is credited in it because of flashback scenes and people say, oh, well, you couldn't figure out how to write a full movie and you just threw this shit in there. So that's half true and half not true if you want to believe Craven's story on it. But it really was a rinse and repeat. Only this time it's motorcycle racers on a broken down bus running into what's left of the family. So the same year he does another TV movie, Invitation to Hell. And uh, the movie's about a guy designs a heat resistant suit that allows him to descend into hell via a country club as a front to save his family. This is the worst fucking idea for a movie I've ever heard in my life. Craven was quoted as saying the most preposterous premise he's ever filmed. And it really was because it's this family. They go to a town there. Everybody's trying to get them to become members of a country club. And it's a front for a portal to hell. This is some troll two sounding shit. Almost. Now, anybody who's paying attention will notice that I keep saying 84, 84, 
Did Nightmare on Elm Street come out in 84? Well, it did. During this time, he had already been shopping and rewriting Nightmare on Elm Street, and nobody fucking wanted it. And he continued to shop and rewrite it until some guy named Robert Shea said he would fund it. Don't give it to anyone else. In a few months, we'll make your movie. We'll go deeper into that story later. But of course, that ended up being 84's Nightmare on Elm Street, quote unquote, the house that Freddie built as far as New Line Cinema goes. And I really had to show a lot of restraint and not write anything else right here because I'm saving it for the fucking franchise. But the, I believe it was the very next year, 85, I fucked up on my notes here. Um, he directed five episodes of The Twilight Zone. And this is the point that I was getting at was once this happened, it's almost every year he's at least working on a project. And that's good fucking work for a filmmaker. But then 86 happens. Deadly Friend happens. <laughs> now, this movie, from everything that I read, did not do well at all. No. And Wes Craven contributes a lot of factors in his life to it, right? Like, what did he say he had going on? He second failed marriage, right? Yeah, that was Sharon Stone's fault, allegedly. But we'll get it. I'm being serious. We'll get into that later. Unless, I forgot, unless you know what I'm talking about. I forgot that was her first movie, but no, I didn't know more than that. But uh, he got pulled from directing Beetlejuice, right? Like when he's supposed to direct Beetlejuice originally? Yeah, he was attached to that and another prominent movie. Superman 4, but fucking Christopher Reeves said he didn't want him directing his fucking movie, which yep. I don't know why. And uh, he was also, I believe the interview I saw, he was being sued because somebody's saying he stole the idea for Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, all this was happening at the same time. Do you know the details about that lawsuit, though? No. Okay, it was some guy in India that made this movie that I'm not even going to say what it was about. Because when I was listening to it on the audiobook, it's like, this has nothing to do with anything in Nightmare on Elm Street. And Wes Craven supposedly didn't have an errors and omissions clause from the movie where, oops, if we accidentally plagiarize something, we're safe legally. And he ended up going back and figuring out that he did have one and that this guy needed to go away. But Craven finally asked him, he's like, dude, what the hell makes you think that this and Nightmare on Elm Street have anything to do with each other? And the writer of the other movie who was suing him responded with, well, they're both scary movies. <laughs> That's like some modern American basis for a fucking lawsuit. <laughs> he ended up having to pay a settlement, but it didn't go he watched his ass after that. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, one more interesting thing. Do you know why he got pulled from Beetlejuice? No. Nobody thought he could do comedy. Now, when we get into some later quote unquote works, he's not the writer. There's some really good comedy that other people wrote, but going through his body of work, he always has sprinkled shit in there. Now, I got to say in Last House, it's dark. It's out right. of place. But even in Hills, there's some slapsticky type stuff in there. It, it seems like he's always thought there has to be some rounding. You, your movie can't be one thing. It's got to have other things to other legs to stand on. Somebody from either Hills Have Eyes or Last House on the Left said, I don't recall Wes Craven ever directing a person. Like he would, he would say, do your own thing. And he let people improvise a lot or yeah. come up with their own ideas. So in a way, you could contribute that to his directing because he let them have that freedom but it's almost like he did a good job picking the actors, which is another part of being a director. Yeah. And they were good at doing that stuff. There was, I came across a lot of that, that he would um, direct by proxy, so to speak. Like he would be the quiet guy saying, this is what we need to do. He'd never yell at people and everything. But then like on Hills, Peter Locke, the producer was always there. And he's like, he was the one doing the blocking and yelling at the actors and stuff like that. But he was always calm and quiet. I heard that on Last House on the Left, Sean Cunningham was like a 
secondary director. Same kind of role, yeah. I mean, when I was watching an interview, it, it really kind of sounded like going back to Toby Hooper, Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. But let me get back to this turd of a movie. So <laughs> I've only seen pieces of it, and we're not getting into this one. If we do a Wes Craven Revisited, there are some movies in here we're not going into that I think might be fun to go back to. But it started off as a PG film that was supposed to be similar to Starman. Okay. So the whole idea of alien, let me teach you, we love each other, only it was going to be a boy and his robot. I know absolutely nothing about this fucking movie. I remember very little about Starman other than seeing the previews when I was younger and the dudes in it. Oh, the uh, Big Lebowski? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, you know who directed it? No. You really don't? No. John Carpenter. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Now, when I read that. I about shit egg rolls because I had no fucking clue. I hadn't seen the movie since I was a kid. I remember my mom making me watch it. I just remember the previews making it look like a romance movie. It straight up is. Okay. Because it's Jeff Bridges and, oh, I can't think of her name, but she's from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's all I, I can't got. remember her name either. <laughs> the roll in the dice move, man. That's all I got. <laughs> but at any rate, his uh, robot buddy, BB, not BB-8, just BB. Who sounds like Stripe from Gremlins. <laughs> I shit you not. And this robot looks like R2-D2 and Bumblebee got together and shed out a robot. I'm going to Google all of this later. You're it's, sure John Carpenter made Star Man? That's <laughs> what it fucking said on the interwebs, man. But uh, it's so bad. This is the movie that has the infamous. It's got fucking Mama Fratelli in it. After Mama Fratelli fucking shoots the robot, the boy takes the fucking chip out of him, his AI chip, and puts it in the brain of his dead girlfriend. Now, the robot's been murdering people, and now the, the girlfriend's reanimated and murdering people. It's so bad, I have to see the whole thing. If we ever have a Patreon and we have to have random shit to do, we're going <laughs> to mystery science theater this fucking movie. Oh, from the clips I've watched, it looks like we could. But, <laughs> but this has the infamous, the basketball being thrown into somebody's head and their head explodes and the corpse walks around. That's that shot, if you've ever seen that spoofed on anything. The movie seemed really weird because there was this one nightmare sequence in it, and Warner Brothers saw that and they're like, Craven, you're the, you're the Nightmare on Elm Street guy. You got to go back and put more of that shit in the movie. So they basically forced him to go add horror elements to what was supposed to be a PG movie. And that's part of what fucked up the whole thing. So it just feels like a wacky ride. He did have an assistant on that movie, though, named Marianne Madalena. And that's who he talked about with Craven Madalena. We'll get into more, more on that here in a minute. But that was basically the only good thing to come out of this as far as here, his career goes. Um, so next he starts working on another nightmare script. It's like, fuck it. They want me to do another nightmare. I'll do another nightmare. Had two come out by now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And he had no, no involvement. Correct. But how many nightmare on normal streets did we have at this point? Do you know? We already had two. Just, just two. the first two. Yeah, okay. Just first two. So he starts writing dream warriors and it was rewritten, but Craven says all they really did was change the character names. Because everybody talks about how Craven's script was too dark and this is too intense. And people have been quoted as saying, you want to have kids in a psych ward with mental issues and these horrible death scenes and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, they, they took my fucking movie from me. Um, I'm not quoting him there. But basically, he's like, they reworked some shit and said they rewrote it. And I think that comes through in the movie loud and fucking clear because I really wish I would have noted who directed it. And I'm going off on a nightmare tangent here. I'm sorry, but it's my favorite nightmare. <laughs> but one and three are my favorite. And you can feel that craven touch on both of them. There's no denying that. One, three, and if four is Dream Master, those are my, my three favorite hands down. Okay. I like A New Nightmare a lot, but I don't know if we count it. Like, it's I, separate, right? I count it because it's in my old DVD box set. Okay. 
And I like that there's a big inkling of quote unquote meta in the movie that you see played with right after that in Scream. And you get to see Wes play himself. Yes. I know we kind of went on a Nightmare on Elm Street tangent here, but you can't talk about Wes Craven and not fucking talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. I know. I restrained so much and I didn't even put it in my notes, but I have to talk about it. So I'm sorry. So 88 rolls around and we've got Serpent in the Rainbow, which I have not seen. I know it's about, you know, voodoo and whatnot. And it was another one that had hands pulling the movie in different directions type thing. It is a good movie. It is one of his more artsy films. Yeah. Uh, it's got Bill Pullman in it, which, you know, he's good in fucking everything. Yeah. What was the quote I saw Wes Craven say? Diffusion of purpose. <laughs> I really liked it. So he wanted to do like a historically accurate movie on voodoo. Yeah. Like people that actually believed in it, their religion. And this is what happens because he's a fucking big reader. We said that earlier, right? So he, he found the whole thing fascinating. The studio wanted Wes Craven to make him a fucking horror movie. So where he was trying to do this, I'm sure it was like a thriller for the most part, right? Yeah. But he just wanted to do this like historically accurate movie about voodoo and they made him turn it into a horror movie and you can feel it when you watch the movie. I say it's a good movie and an artsy movie. It's not one of my favorites. Like it's not bad, but it's just like, it's one of those movies you're like, all of these pieces are really fucking cool. And then these pieces feel like they're going a different direction. Okay. And that was a studio versus Wes Craven fight. Well, and that's a good thing to bring up because we're seeing this as a reoccurring theme when he's trying to make shit. There's like, you're the nightmare guy. Do this, do that. Speaking of which, let me take a step back to Hills Have Eyes 2. It was released right after Nightmare on Elm Street because there was so much buzz about Nightmare on Elm Street. They're like, oh, fuck, let's slap this guy's name on it and release it. Still didn't work. But uh, this leads us into Shocker in 89, another one that he wrote and directed. It was part of a two-film deal, um, the other one being People Under the Stairs. And this, the plan all along was Freddy's gotten slapsticky at this point, and Craven really wanted to dethrone him with a new terrifying character. And instead of being in your dreams, this guy's going to be the power of electricity. Right. Which I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. I don't remember digging it that much. But this was the point in his career where he said, fuck it, I'm the horror guy, and I'll be the best horror guy I can be. This whole time, he wanted other projects. I know. I never could watch X-Files and look at Mitch Pilecki <laughs> and not think of fucking Shocker. The Skin Man. Their boss. He's the Shocker. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> He's Horace Pinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's just like, you, you know, used his real human name and confused me. <laughs> I always like the guy. Like even on X Files, he's fucking. He's a gem, right? Like, yeah. He's an asshole, but he's like funny and a badass at the same time. But yeah, man, he was fucking from Shocker. Um, I don't remember Shocker real well either, but I do remember like some of the scenes. I always think of him as like the drill killer when you hit like Slumber Party Massacre <laughs> two or three or something. He's like the rockabilly guy. Yeah. Like I just remember him being kind of like campy when he's like uh, going to kill people in the house and stuff. Yeah, I remember it not having a big effect on me, but. In an effort to break away from this, Craven actually tried to create a fucking comedy TV show same year. 89 being uh, The People Next Door. He directed one episode of it. I don't remember if it was the first or not. And I think this is one of those that I don't even know if it ever aired like that bad. But it was about a cartoonist who can will his imagination into reality. He once again worked with now producer Marianne Madalena on this. Shocker. The People Under the Stairs, Nightmare Cafe, another failed TV show, this time with Robert England, New Nightmare, Vampire in Brooklyn, and Scream. And this is what finally led up to the formation of Craven Madalena Films. Now, I glossed over Nightmare Cafe in there. 
that's another one that I don't know if it either got shit canned before it aired or got like the plug pulled its first season. When I was looking it up and looking at some screenshots from or some still shots from it, I think I may have seen it. But does this ring any bells with you, Nightmare Cafe? So I remember, nothing to do with Freddy Krueger. I do remember there being a TV show that was supposed to be like weekly different horror stories, and it the name had something to do with Nightmare on Elm Street or Freddy. I okay. don't remember. And Robert England was in it, and I thought it was in a cafe. So this either came on TV or got turned into something else by New Line Cinema. Gotcha. But there was a show that was supposed to be like your tales from the crypt or your tales from the dark side. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it had Freddy or Nightmare on Elm Street's plastered all over the title. <laughs> and I think maybe the first episode, Freddy's like announcing the story, but that was it. Well, Freddy or Robert England, because you also had Freddy's Nightmares, which was the syndicated TV show where Freddy was like the Crypt Keeper and would present different stories. That's what I'm talking about, but I'm wondering if this turned into that, maybe. I think they were totally separate, because okay. Craven had no involvement. If I remember right, Craven had no involvement with uh, Freddy's Nightmares. Right, but you would, I think Bob Shea did. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I he wonder was, He was milking Freddy for anything. I'm just saying, I wonder if maybe like Wes's idea got turned into... Could have been. Yeah, like, you know no, what I mean? Because Oh, dude. It, this is Jesse, you know, spitball no, no. in here. Well, and it was so slapsticky and ridiculous by that point. I think Craven may have actually said, well, let's do this and then peeled away for that. I don't know, but I'm going to look into that because now I'm curious. The best representation of Freddy getting slapsticky is fucking Wes Craven's new nightmare. And uh, it's been a while. But Nancy's on the talk show getting interviewed, I think, for something else. Yeah. And or Heather Lingenkamp, right? right? Okay, and uh, and of course the guy keeps the talk show host keeps asking her about Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy, and he's like, "Oh, I have your buddy Robert England here," and Freddy comes through, and he's like, "Oh," and he's like making jokes, and that's Wes Craven like making fun of what Freddy had became, right? Yeah, and like I just I feel like he did it best, like like making oh, yeah. fun of how slapsticky his his vision became, for better or worse, and I think it had some skyrocketing good parts and some dismal lows. Freddie, I, mean, <laughs> I can't believe I keep doing this, but uh, the thing is Robert England improved some good funny lines in the first one. Yeah. Which grew into him being slapsticky, but I liked him having some funny lines. Yes. Now you're playing with power. I did not like yeah, <laughs> Even as a Nintendo great kid. graphics. Yeah, that was, but you know, God, this is God. Like stuff like that. Those were good lines. And that's why Nightmare 3 is so fucking good because I think Nightmare 3 struck the perfect balance of comedy and terror. This also goes into Wes is good in the casting room at picking his actors and he's good at letting them have freedom yeah. to fucking make it work. Yep. But we uh, we derailed into Nightmare again. That's only two, right? One one wasn't even a derail. We started off at Nightmare and just stayed there. But no. I, I think I'm bumping Nightmare on Elm Street franchise up in the list. <laughs> But just two years later, he does the other movie in the two-picture deal, Shocker, People Under the Stairs. Now, this was another one he wrote and directed, and he had actually started writing. This was one that he wrote the first third or the the first of three acts back in 78 and had a dream that he, in his dream, finished writing the script, woke up and finished writing the script because he remembered it from his dream. Like, I swear I wake up sometimes thinking I wrote music <laughs> in, in my head. I don't... I, I don't know how this man did it, but people under the stairs I haven't seen in forever. I think it was a meh for me. You've got two guys and a young boy attempt to rob a house and discover what I call the crazy ass quote unquote believers and the people they keep under the stairs. 
I want to say the dad in the movie, like the bad dad, is Reverend Werewolf from Silver Bullet. I'm pretty sure. He may be. We're not going into deep detail on it, and I didn't. Here's the thing. So my buddy Jarrett and I used to take turns spending the weekend at each other's house, much like you and I did. Yeah. And I got him into watching horror movies, and a lot of my 80s and 90s horror movies, we blockbustered on the weekend together. And I remember renting that one just because it said Wes Craven on the cover. I remember not being impressed, and I've never rewatched it. It saddens me that he wrote that one as well, too, then, with it just not leaving that much of an impression. Well, and this may make me sound like I'm wrong about something I said earlier, because he wrote it from the point of view of comedy first and shock value second, um, is my understanding. And it just doesn't seem to work together. But from what I remember, and then going back and doing a little bit of reading, it's just a big play on race and religion. I can't get past that. I think it's a class thing, but you get the class warfare in Hills Have Ice. Well, you do. The thing about People Under the Stairs, though, is a lot like Nightmare on Elm Street. He read a story about this actually happening, that um, two black youths broke into a white family's house and everybody was up in arms like, oh, my God, look, there goes the, the scum of the city invading the proper people of the city. And the quote unquote proper people of the city had fucking children caged up in their house and they, and they only found out because these two hoodlums broke in. And it's a wonderful thing that shows, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And what it plays on in the story is the kids only doing it um, because he's him and his mom are about to get evicted and the house they break into is their landlords. So it's a little deeper. And I think that's the problem. It's presented as a comedy with shock value, but the subject matter is actually way deeper and it's so buried. I think it's a kid and his dad, right? Because isn't Ving Rhames one of the guys? It is, but and the kid's fool, if I remember. That's what he gets called. I don't remember his actual name. Um, but he's just another guy in in the okay. in the building or something. It's not his not his father, I don't think. Okay, I just remember there being two guys, and there was there was an age difference. But yeah. this really goes into his peaks and valleys. Yes, because I mean, Last House on the Left is a fucked up movie. Yeah, but it's a memorable one, and it was artsy in its own way and like a big leap out there and it's always talked about oh yeah you got nine Elm street and you got scream but i yep. just really don't feel like there's fucking anything else in there there's not a lot in between now this brings us to 94 with new nightmare which we won't do this time i promise we'll talk about it when we get to that episode immediately followed up by vampire in brooklyn oh so here we go again craven's excited to do a comedy and Eddie Murphy is stuck in a straight character mindset and wanted the side characters to be funny. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Eddie Murphy like a big part in this movie being made? Yeah. And he I wanted Wes he, Craven. He may even wrote it. I'd have to go look. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure he wrote it. He's at least like the producer or the idea guy behind it. And he wanted Wes Craven because he was wanting to make a fucking horror movie where he played a scary fucking vampire Dracula-like character. Yep. And... I mean, he's Eddie Murphy. The studio wants fucking comedy. And Craven wanted comedy. I know. And Wes Craven is like, it's like the nutty professor. He's playing all these characters. It's going to be fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There was another movie. I forget what it was just before this, where it was one of the first times that Eddie Murphy dove off into playing multiple characters. Um, But yeah, the movie didn't do good. But in the end, the movie ended up becoming one of the type movies that Murphy was trying to get away from. And we're just going to leave that at that. Now, here's where we hit a weird time. So in 95, we have the kickoff of the Wes Craven Presents films. And I want to point out that for the longest time, my dumb ass thought Wes Craven directed some of these. And he didn't. 
He was a producer, sometimes in name only. Hit me with the list. Come on, bring it. Well, the first one is the only interesting one that I'll blow through the list. But Mind Ripper, 95, co-written by Jonathan Craven, started off as The Hills Have Eyes 3. And then the story got so good, it was like, I think this will stand on its own. And they decided to just veer away from The Hills tie-in and make it its own movie. I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. I haven't seen it. Um, but then we go in su- succession here. Wishmaster, Carnival of Souls, Don't Look Down, TV movie. Dracula 2000 and they. I thought he directed Wishmaster and Dracula 2000. I thought he directed Wishmaster and they. Fuck, I thought it was called Wes Craven's Dracula 2000. But that's what they did. They were all Wes Craven presents, yada, yada, yada. That's Wes fucked Cra- up. I know. I actually like Dracula 2000. Remember, I almost did it on the vampire yeah, yeah. episode. Yeah, we talked about it. That one's not bad. Um, Wishmaster, I don't remember being great, but I haven't seen it since theaters. When somebody says Wishmaster, all I remember is, I wish my lawyer would go fuck himself. At the basketball game? (laughs) Just sitting somewhere? I just remember somebody wishes their lawyer would go fuck himself, and it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. We'll find a way to talk about them then. Um, So the next thing, now this is, I went through all those going up to 2002, but we're still in 95 at this point. So he was next set to do a remake of The Haunting, the 63 movie. That wasn't working out, and somebody kept coming in and bugging him to do this other project. A little shit project, right? Yeah, they little, never amount to anything. Yeah, a little shit project, and after being asked twice, and the infamous, it was a con or something, some kid going, man, your shit's gotten weak. When are you going to do something scary again? He He's left, like, oh, I don't want to be a pussy. I got to do this. <laughs> he left that project to direct what was then Scary Movie, which, of course, brings us to Scream in 96, and please go back and listen to the Scream episode because we have actually done that whole franchise. And it's a work of fucking art. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) But the interesting thing after the success of Scream was that he got a two-sequel deal with an option to pull anything Dimension owned at his choosing, and he could make a movie out of it. 97, we get Scream 2 because they shut that movie out super fucking fast. And before we get to the movie he chose, he finally gets published. He writes a fucking book called Fountain Society in 98. And he was shocked at how much editors could change things to the point of completely rewriting his work. (laughs) Because he was so excited, like, fuck editors, fuck the studio. This is me writing what I want to write. And he would get shit back and be like, where did this fucking sentence come (laughs) from? I never wrote this. But I haven't read it because I don't fucking read. But it's a science fiction thriller um, about brain transplants and cloning and consciousness and memories moving in between the old bodies and the new bodies and shit like that. So Reanimator 3? Pretty much. (laughs) Um, If I remember correctly, the three movie deal and he could pull anything from Dimension was very specific because there was like this group of dimension movies and then this art house section yeah, of yeah. dimension. And he could only pull one of them from yeah. the artsy section, right? I can't remember the name of it, but. Well, they gave him a list and said, you can have any of these. We have the rights to any of these. And what he picked was what came out in 99, Music of the Heart, which at the time was 50 violins. Um, Meryl Streep, right? Yeah, which was originally supposed to be Madonna. And Madonna wanted to turn it into a sex film. And Craven like had her go into violin lessons and shit. And she's like, well, the story should really follow who I'm fucking. And Craven's like, no, I have full <laughs> control over this project. I have free reign. What I say goes, get me Meryl Streep. I don't think it went down that way, but 
It was originally supposed to be Madonna of all people. Right. And, but this, the, the thing is, this was his dream project. Yes. This is what he wanted. It's like James Wan. I going back to him, but he's a more recent director that we did. You know, he was like, I want to do comedies. I want to do action. And everybody kept making him do horror movies, which he's fucking great at. Yeah. But like Wes Craven wanted to do romance movies. He wanted to do a comedy. He wanted to be able to work with people like Meryl Streep. Yep. And I think like the interview I saw with him and, and he's like, took 30 years of my career for me to be able to do this, but I finally got to do it. And you just see this glimmer in his eye. I mean, yeah. it was like a dream come true for him. Yep. Cause it was, you know, music likes classical music. It's about teaching. He's a fucking professor. Like this is everything it's cultured as it's far removed from horror as I could be. And I can do what I want. This is great. Right. Cause I think it's, she's teaching violin to poor kids in like urban neighborhoods. Yeah. Right? yeah it's inner city kids in Harlem. And I've never seen it because it's not. I haven't either. <laughs> fucking it's, asshole saying that. But. It's Mr. Holland's opus, right? That I have seen. <laughs> I have to love that fucking movie. He's going to come back up later. Richard Dreyfuss. I'll bring uh, it back. I'll bring it back. <laughs> so we move on to the very next year, 2000, Scream 3. Once again, covered. Go listen to that. Then in 2005, Cursed. Oh, I so, so wanted to do Cursed. On the werewolf episode so I could fucking shit on it. And I was like, this isn't a podcast where we shit on movies. And then down the road, I started shitting on bad movies. So we're going to come back and we're going to do werewolves too. And curse is going to be on it. Um, <laughs> works for me, man. Um, in 2010, we have his next writer director, which is my soul to take, which is another one that we will cover in detail on the next episode. Followed up the very next year in 2011 with scream four. Now, I know there's a handful of non-horror movies that I didn't even mention, and I think there's a couple of not straight-up horror films that I put in here anyways, but these were just ones, quote-unquote, I had to mention and that I thought were interesting in his career. Now, going back, like I said earlier, you can see the archetype from his youth of what he keeps putting in the movies between mom and dad, um, religion, cult. Uh, class war all that shit's in there I just find it so fascinating that he keeps pulling from the same well over and over and over and repackaging it and I really think he didn't get the shit together till Nightmare um, not to say there's good movies before that but I think he really figured out that formula for what he had rattling around in his head and to put out there as what was going to be the the turning point and cornerstone of his fucking career. He went on to do good things after that, but like you said, or I believe you said earlier, the rest of his work is always going to be overshadowed by, and probably in this order, Nightmare, Scream, Last House. You know, Last House being at the launch of the exploitation scene, in the midst of the horror fucking Everybody shitting out movies, nightmare comes and fucking breaks away from everything. And then scream right in the dawn of uh horrors played out, we're done with this, and reinventing the genre. Especially slashers. Like slashers were fucking done for yeah. when he made Scream. And I love if almost every interview I've seen with him, and I may have brought this up in Scream, but I'm bringing it up again here, and then I'll stop going on with diarrhea of the mouth about the man. But if you see him being congratulated on Scream in an interview and he's like, let's talk about Scream. You did such an amazing thing. And the first thing he always says is, 
Kevin Williamson did a great job writing that. Let's make sure we understand that first. You know, he never, he's never been a showboat. I've never seen him gloat about anything he ever did. He's always talked about, it's the fans, it's the people. And if people want me to scare the shit out of them and that's what they think I'm good at, let me keep scaring the shit out of them. He, in every interview, always has that Father Christmas twinkle in his eye. The most genuine smile I've ever seen anyone in Hollywood have. And always commends his actors, his editors, his writers, always never taking credit for himself, it seems. And I mean, honestly, we say this a lot about a lot of the horror guys, but I I mean it the most with Wes Craven. He genuinely just seemed like the nicest dude ever. Yeah. And he made some fucked up shit. (laughs) He did, but he had, he had something to say. I don't think he, it was ever gratuitous. And I think that's what a lot of people didn't understand with the first movie we're going to get into here is he wasn't doing something for the sake of doing it. It was doing it because of one, what he was seeing around him and the approach to the movie that got so much praise was because it was real similar to the style, at least in production of what he was working on. Well, Josh, I think you did a great job. I don't think Wes Craven's rolling over in his grave. Good. And you made him proud, man. I was, I, I thought it was awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, let me uh, take the reins on that one because I know you, you usually do the bulk of the backstory on these guys, which I actually appreciate because it's less work for me. Oh, I love the backstory. That's more fun to me than the movie sometimes. Yeah, but this one this one I had to do for myself and uh, for the wife. We'll, we'll see how she judges it. I'm just glad I asked. I said, Josh, I'm going to buy you a fucking autobiography, but I want you to read a book on this one while I'm having a kid. And he fucking <laughs> did it. It was fucking awesome. I appreciate it. I wanted to, to throw in a couple of quotes from the master of horror himself. I really wanted to put audio clips of them in. A lot of these are written. Oh, okay. I couldn't. I mean, I'm sure they're recorded somewhere. I couldn't find them. Gotcha. And it's not like we have research assistants. Nor can we afford any. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even pay you. Dude, I don't even pay myself. <laughs> this actually costs money. To <laughs> no shit. One of them, I'm not going to do the whole quote, but it was on how to watch a horror movie. And he was just talking about the experience of going to a movie theater with people around and the transformational power. And it was the equivalent of a shaman telling the story. And it's just something that's kind of gone through the age of time. And I'm paraphrasing that one, but I thought that was really cool. Uh, but here, here's some of my favorites. The first monster you have to scare the audience with is yourself. And yep. that's the root of all horror. I fucking, I love that quote. Horror films don't create fear. They release it. Yes. I actually want that on a fucking shirt. I got to tag on to something on that. And it just goes to show because he was raised so sheltered and look at what he had to do after the fact to get it out of his system. Um, There's all the jokes always made about, you know, the preacher's kid is always the wildest one because they've never tasted life. And people give just horror in general, like, oh, you're crazy horror movie people. You probably want to cut up dogs. You know, I'm just pulling that out of my ass. But and I totally agree. That those of us that find an outlet, it's in it, the baser instincts of all human beings. There is an element of horror, shock, and fear. And if you get this shit out of your system through seeing, making, writing, whatever, then you don't chop up people and keep them in the refrigerator. Right. That's, that's what I think. I love this. This is the last quote. If I were interested in reality, I'd be making documentaries. <laughs> that one's just ironic. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And and this isn't so much a uh, a quote, but a story. But supposedly when he was directing Drew Barrymore for Scream, she told him a story about like a boy when, when she was a kid caught an animal on fire, like a dog or something. 
with a lighter and burned them and she's busting into tears telling him that story. Okay. Say so he would use that story and say it back to her when he needed her to cry. That's harsh, but effective. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Drew Barrymore was fucking awesome and screamed for the little bit she was in there. <laughs> for 13 minutes or whatever it is. She played her part. Well, as per usual, we've talked about the man and what led him up to his career and a brief overview of said career. And now we're going to move into a little bit of detail with the first and most important film at the launch of his career, and that being 1972's Last House on the Left. And this movie is also the most fucked up movie of his career. It is really disturbing. I remember watching this one a good bit when I was younger. And the last time I actually saw it before the podcast was with you roughly 0203. Yeah. And then I watched it again recently. And this movie fucking bothers me now, like as an adult, probably because I have two daughters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like watching this movie the first time Ella or Molly goes on like a trip to a concert, we're fucking following them, dude. I'm calling you. I'm going to say, you remember last house on the left? We're going to go follow them and make sure they don't get fucking murdered. Um, this is honestly going to be probably the most disturbing film we've covered on the podcast. Probably. And like you've heard me say on this podcast, referring to something as making me last house on the left level of uncomfortable. Um, I do want to point out something real quick. When you were talking about when you saw it, over at the apartment, I had always heard that it was Wes Craven's college film. Oh, I was going to bring that up. My bad. It's, it's so funny. The stories we would hear about horror movies that all horror fans knew before the internet was really a thing. And then when we do this podcast and you go back and hear it, everyone ever met always said that last house on the left, he taught film class at a university and he made a student film of this class and that was Last House on the Left. And it was a really fucking cool story. Yeah. But it was just a story. Yeah. But the real story is so much better. I mean, I guess people got confused with that and The Searchers, which was more in line with what we heard as far as how it was back then. But maybe that was more palatable than saying, well, yeah, I was doing some porn and documentaries and we made this. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works, man. Uh, this movie, though, I mean... I know I joke a lot. I don't know how I'm going to do it on this episode because I'm going to be talking about rape a good bit. I yeah. mean, it's just, and rape is not a, it's not a comfortable thing to watch. Definitely no. not a comfortable thing for someone to experience. Definitely. Right? And uh, it's not comfortable to talk about actually either. Agreed. And it's not the whole movie, but it's definitely the sticking point in there, right? Yes. And uh, I mean, it's just something we got to talk about to do the movie. One of the greatest things for this movie was the fucking media campaign. The ad that would play with, uh, I think I did the bit on the end of the last episode, right? Yeah. To avoid feigning, keep repeating, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. You know, like that ad was fucking fantastic. And I just remember hearing people talk about that when we talk about horror movies before I'd even seen Last House on the Left and I was like 13. Like that was just something it, it fucking extended past the film. And that was really great marketing because anybody who saw that's like, I got to go see this movie. Yeah. And I think it actually came from a marketing guy that helped come up with the name of the movie, right? Okay. Like, I believe the the story was that he was showing the movie to his wife and she was like, oh, I can't handle this. I'm going to faint. And he's like, you know, just keep telling yourself it's only a movie. It's only a movie. Like, I got to fucking use that. Let's write that down. <laughs> and the movie is based off of Virgin Spring, which was a Ingmar Bergman movie. Yep. Which was based on a medieval Swedish folktale. And it's a rape revenge story. Yep. I mean, that's it. 
Yeah. And you, and this was the birth of it. You would not have, I spit on your grave and everything that followed after it without this film. And I don't think I spit on your grave was that much after this. Was it? I think it was, uh, like mid to late seventies. I saw something saying the movie was originally titled night of vengeance. Okay. But I couldn't find any interviews where they use that. Uh. Um, I guess the important thing to say, this movie was made by Wes Craven as the writer and director. It was produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who did Friday the 13th. Yep. And the movie was edited by Wes Craven and Steve Miner, who directed Friday the 13th Part 2. Yep. So there is a lot of horror roots in here. We got Freddy, we got Mrs. Voorhees, and we got Jason. All worked on this movie together. So that's a lot of fucked up minds that came together to do this film. True. But when they were when they were making the movie, they kept trying to show it at different movie theaters, right? And they were using different names. And and somebody came up with sex crime of the century. And they're like, oh, this is gonna work. And it didn't. That was a little too on the nose. And they did Krug and Company. Fucking terrible name. Yeah, that's just bad. <laughs> and a marketing guy that I believe Sean Cunningham went to is the one that came up with the name. Which Wes Craven ironically hated. Oh. But it's an infamous name to me. It is. It's a great name. It sticks out. And it's one of those things they don't, they never actually explained it's the last house on the left. You know what I mean? <laughs> just, it's a good name. And it fucking, I think that kind of helps attract people like uh, Moths to a Flame as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like having a good band name. <laughs> the movie was X-rated, right? He edited it, turned it back in, and it was X-rated once again. And the story goes, he put all the original footage back in it, and somehow, I, I don't know if you got this out of your book, but they got a copy of, like, the seal for Rated R and just fucking put it on the movie and started taking it to drive-ins and playing it. Well, I know they, that wouldn't surprise me with the crew that was doing this, but I know they finally just said, fuck the ratings board, we're going to do this and make a little bit of money. It's not like it's nationally released, nobody's going to know. Right. So it wouldn't surprise me if they pulled some shit like that in that same vein. And story goes that Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham had to have an office just for putting the movie back together because projectionists were fucking cutting entire scenes out of the movie. Yes, they were. And I don't think there's an original print of this film in its entirety anywhere in existence. That is correct. And there's also scenes that we'll never, ever see that were never returned after being physically cut out of the film in the projectionist booth. There's a projectionist that has an original copy in his basement somewhere. I promise you. Maybe if they were smart enough to realize what was going on. We'll find out when he dies and they find it. But this movie was banned in just about every fucking country outside of the United States. <laughs> it is one of the video nasties yep. that we talked about with uh, Evil Dead, right? That yep. was on the list. Which when you compare the two, Evil Dead's pretty fucking tame. That's exactly what I was fixing to say. If you want to look at this and Evil Dead and the video nasties criterion for being on the list, it's obvious somebody doesn't know what the fuck they were doing at the time. <laughs> and I'm just going over a little tidbits of trivia that I, I couldn't necessarily fit into the movie. Uh, and we're almost done, but I thought a good bit of this was pretty fucking interesting. Um, the movie was originally supposed to be like pretty hardcore pornographic. Yes. And the actors were like, fuck no. <laughs> And that got pulled down a bit, which is probably for the better. Yeah. Wes Craven used a documentary crew to film the movie and let them bring their own documentary camera because he didn't have to pay to rent one. But that's how, like in Germany and stuff, the movie was advertised as being an actual snuff film. And it really is filmed that way. Yep. And I wish I could contribute this to Wes Craven as a director, but both he and Sean Cunningham said in an interview, 
Wes didn't know what the fuck he was doing when he made this movie and he was winging it. And they think that's part of why it was so successful because he didn't know this is how you're supposed to do this. This is how you're supposed to frame this. This is how you're supposed to introduce this. He just fucking did his own thing and made a movie. Well, that's all that the two of them had worked on was documentaries. So the the whole thing being shot from that approach was what they knew, but fit so perfectly with making it feel like it was set in the real world. And like you said, you know, some people thinking it was a snuff film, a later movie claiming to show actual snuff film footage, which lifting clips from this movie. You could do it. And it's believable. I mean, even the blood, like it was just red and blue food coloring mixed yeah. together. Right. But they made pretty accurate blood from most of the scenes with the lighting and whatnot. Yes. And I have to bring this up right now because it's just, it's vivid in my mind. The blood in this is so much better than the blood in the Hills Have Eyes. Because <laughs> that shit's just red. But anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So later down the road in, in Wes Craven's career, when he was getting in the director's guild and being parts of this and that. People would say, this is Wes Craven. He's an established director. And they'd say, oh, what did you make? And he would say, last house and left. And people would literally get up from the fucking dinner tables and leave. <laughs> like, just everybody just thought he was a sick and depraved person. David Hess, who played Krug, fucking was also the composer for the movie. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he did all the songs, which I don't know if anybody's ever noticed before, but if you listen to the lyrics, they're like themed for the movie. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are weird, out of place, like uplifting music. But then when you've listened to the lyrics, it's like, oh, fuck. That's part of what's disturbing about this fucking movie, though. Yeah. Uh, Martin Crove, who plays the sheriff's deputy in the movie, and some of you might recognize him as fucking Reese from Karate Kid. Fear does not exist in this dojo, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking love him. Uh, But he actually, they wanted him to be Krug. Okay. And he didn't want to fucking do it. And he's like, I can't do this. I'll, I'll be the sheriff, Stephanie. And he's like, but I know a guy <laughs> that not only could he play the perfect Krug for you, but he can also do the music for you. Okay. So he was friends with David Hess. I think he was dating David Hess's sister. So he got him, but they specifically wanted like a big guy because fucking Martin Crove was, he was pretty jacked in that movie, right? Yeah. So it was, the story goes, it was like a really hot summer day. And he put eight sweaters on David Hess to drive him to try out so he just look bigger. <laughs> but the thing is, in my head, I guess he's so imposing. He always does seem like really buff and jacked. I mean, he was muscular, but I guess yeah. he just wasn't a big guy. Yeah. But he's imposing, I mean, he, though. Yeah, he's definitely imposing. And I mean, those are just all little fun little fucking tidbits about the movie. Like uh, Sean Cunningham used his parents' house for the movie. And his parents had no fucking clue what his friends were doing. There were cameras, supposedly. <laughs> They're just here shooting some porn again. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Ada, Uh the chicken truck lady, which we'll get to, that was the housemaid and his nanny. No shit. Yeah. That's why if you look at the credits, her name's Ada. Okay. You just threw in the fucking movie. Why not? I mean, this was a gorilla bare bones movie. This is a bad taste. This is evil dead, right? Like just going back to fucking doing everything on your own. I have to say, I love that bit when she's like. How much a chicken weighs this? How much do you weigh? <laughs> fucking love that bit. And Wes Craven was the writer of this film. I don't know if I said that earlier or if Josh said it. I'm sure one of us did. Yeah. But like, so a lot of this came from him. So you got the little tidbits of comedy. Unfortunately, some of it with the cops doesn't play over well to me. They're too dumb. Sometimes, yeah. A little too uh, Barney Fife-ish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that did come back, didn't it? Yeah, he didn't write it, but it did come back. He might have added that part. It was a lot better with Deputy Dewey, though. Uh, last little tidbit of information I want to add, then I'm going to dive into the movie. Oddly enough, he died on the 43rd anniversary of this film. August 30th, 2015 was the 43rd anniversary of Last House on the Left and the same day he passed away. Yeah, that's just weird. 
It's it's totally fucking weird. But obviously the man left a big impression. But to make that great impression, he had to make this fucked up movie. Very <laughs> and up. normally I get into the cast a little bit. A lot of them aren't famous outside of this movie. Already said Martin Crove played the deputy and he was almost Krug, right? So that was Reese. He was in the movie. Uh, Sadie? Yeah. Married to Richard Dreyfus and mother to his children. <laughs> Blew my mind when I heard that. Okay. <laughs> well, it's weird because like I'm picturing her young and I'm picturing him recent. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really funny. So she had a hard time getting that part and she wanted it. She was supposed to play a 40 something year old and she was like 22 or something. Yeah. And she's like, I can play an older person. I can do fucking anything. And that attitude kind of plays into her character. Really. If you think about it, Yeah, her children regularly tease her that she was in one of the worst movies of all time. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> no, that's not fair. Krug was played by David Hess, who was a musician and a composer as well. The interesting one to me was weasel played by Fred J. Lincoln, huge porn star, even bigger porn director. <laughs> He also says he came up with a lot of ideas for shit in the movie. And I was watching, it was a documentary on the film. Now, Wes and Sean aren't in the room with them. Okay. But he says, like, uh, Sadie pulling out intestines was his idea. Using condoms covered in fake blood tied together as the intestines was his idea. Huh. Um, there was another big one. I don't remember what it was. He says that... Uh, I, the. The star of the movie, Sandra Peabody, who plays Mary Collingwood, she, I mean, everybody knows she walked off the set a couple of times. Yeah. And supposedly he talked her into coming back. When Sadie gets it at the end of the movie, he said that was his idea because they were, Wes originally had it written where Estelle just fucking overpowers her and beats his ass. And he's like, how's this doctor's wife from the burbs going to beat a street girl's ass? Let's have her ambush her, knock her down. She drops the knife. She tries to run. We have a fucking pool over here in the darkness that nobody can see. Have her fall in there and just have her run up and slit her throat while she's climbing out. No. And he's like, Sean and Wes will probably never give me credit for any of this. He says that on the interview. But that's interesting to think that he might have done that. And he was honestly the most experienced actor and director on the fucking set. Yeah. So <laughs> different kind of movies. Yeah. Um, Blocking was a little different. I hate to say this because I, I didn't find any proof of it, but he also said that... Lucy Grantham, who plays Phyllis, he said she was an adult film actress, but I don't know if that's true, so I almost don't even want to say it. I came across other stuff that said that she was an adult film actress. My favorite is Junior, Mark Scheffler. He did a little bit of acting outside of this, but he's more well-known for writing episodes of Love Boat and a bunch of fucking episodes of Charles in Charge. No shit. And the Happy Day Reunion. No shit again. He's actually, and there's a lot more credits to that. He was a pretty well-established uh, writer for television. Okay. So he was trying to make it as an actor, and I mean, it worked out. He has a funny story, too. He says that the scene where he's supposed to be, like, high on heroin, yeah, and Mary's trying to get him to, like, take her home and stuff, and he's like, I'll get you a fix, you know, and and this and that. Apparently, she kept doing the scene bad, according to him, and Wes is like, we got to redo it, we got to redo it, and he's sick of fucking doing it. And he said, Wes, can I have two minutes with her? alone and Wes is like okay and he took her and he, he said he grabbed the back of her head and he says you see this fucking cliff over here if you do, if you do it wrong again I'm gonna throw you over the fucking edge and you're gonna fall and Wes is gonna have the cameras rolling already and we're gonna film you and you might get hurt but it's gonna be pretty fucking funny and we're gonna keep it and he goes she got it on the next take holy shit 
I don't know if the story's true, but you definitely shouldn't treat your coworkers that way. Yeah, that's that's some workplace hostility right there. But Jesus Christ, I feel like I've droned on and on about a little bit of trivia on this movie, but it's because really once the movie starts going, it just kind of goes. Yeah. The only bad thing I'll say about this movie, well, other than it being fucked up and having lots of rape in it, is I feel like the editing's kind of all over the place with the cuts. Too many hard cuts. It is. I feel like some scenes could have been stuck together. Yep. It's going to impede my job of doing a plot summary of this film. I feel like, cause it's going to jump so, so much back and forth, but I just wanted to preface it with that. Yeah. Who do we have to thank for that? Cause we're going to cover another movie after this that suffers from the same thing. Wes Craven and Steve Miner edited the movie. Okay. So it's their fault. Damn you guys. But the movie opens up with the ever popular, the events you're about to witness are true. Names and locations have been changed to protect those individuals still living. Utter bullshit. It's based <laughs> off of Virgin Springs. Just like I said earlier, some fucking Law and Order theme started playing in my head for some reason. Maybe I just did the voice that well. Maybe I harnessed it as I was going. But we open up, and it's it's kind of like the uh, the Spielberg opening to Poltergeist. Kinda. You see the lake. You see the woods. You see the ducks. It's all very serene. And then you see a mailbox. It says Mary has the heart with an arrow going through it. And this is like Dr. JD Collingwood on it. Right. And a station wagon rolls up. It's actually Sean Cunningham station wagon. Okay. Okay. And it's the mailman. It's not really apparent that he's the mailman at first, but he's looking at how many letters Mary's gotten. And he's talking about, Oh, she's so popular. Everybody's sending her letters. She is about the prettiest thing I've ever seen. It's kind of creepy. Yes. But <laughs> I guess we're just trying to, she's a cutie, right? She's a keeper. <laughs> Puts the letters in the mailbox, and then I believe it like hard cuts to her naked taking a shower with the fog glass in front of her. It says last house on the left with the title card. Just right there. It almost feels like one of those goofy Tarantino like opens. <laughs> music and all. You know how he likes yeah. to do that style of music? Which this is David Hess doing the music. And then we're introduced to John and Estelle Collingwood, the parents, right? Yep. And this scene is really dumb to me. I don't know why it's in there. They're bitching about how the phone's out. And it's going to take the phone company a while to fix it. Yeah. I almost feel like this has something to do with some shit to hit the cutting room floor. Or if they just wanted a reason for Mary to not be able to check in in the middle of the night and them not be able to check on her. It could have been. Because the phone's mysteriously working the next morning. Not mysteriously. He says, thank God the phone company fixed it. But they kind of make a, like a, a sticking point that the phone's out. Well, because then the phone quits working again later Yeah, on. that does come back up. Okay. But you could have just not done it the first time and had I know. that happen and then just said the phone was out. But Mary enters the room and the dad's immediately criticizing for what she's wearing because you can see her nipples poking <laughs> through the shirt. Daddy, don't be so clinical. Go so all get some sandpaper. Just how it was back then. But uh, it's the dialogue here is kind of cheesy. He's like, I understand you're going to a rock concert tonight, you know, and she's going to see a band called Bloodlust. Which, that's that's that, a pretty progressive name for 1972. Yeah, that name sounds metal as fuck. Yeah, and he's like, didn't they bite the head off of a chicken? And she's like, it was just that one time, daddy. It's it's very cheesy, but he somewhere in the line, he says it's in a dangerous part of town, right? Yeah. And then they just kind of go straight into giving her a present. You're doing something we disapprove of. Have a peace necklace. <laughs> and it's just a necklace with a peace symbol on it. And she's like, oh, daddy. And she's so happy about it. And they put it on her. And to me, that honestly is one of the more ingenious plot hooks of the story. Yes. That is used to greater effect than almost anything in the rest of the movie. <laughs> her friend Phyllis Stone shows up at the house to go to the concert with her. And we find out pretty quickly the mom doesn't approve of her. 
and she's kind of sassy. And I'm assuming she's because Dr. Collingwood's a doctor, obviously. So they're like wealthy. And I'm assuming she's from like a poor family yeah. because I know the mom's like, what do your parents do? And she's like, they're in the iron and steel business. And the mom says, that's an interesting combination. She's like, my mom irons stuff and my dad steals shit. Yeah. Right? Then it's actually a pretty funny line. But, you know, like they're just trying to let you know that she's from a different path in life and mom doesn't approve. Well, and I think it's also, I may be wrong on this, but I think it's also mentioned that she's from the big city and New York because, and they're going to go to New York to see the show. And it was kind of a, a tongue in cheek thing of Craven coming from suburbia of Cleveland, Ohio, and then into the big city and finding out that shit's way different here and kind of a representation of the temptation and the dark path that could lay in front of you. And Phyllis also gets used as an excuse by the dad later in the movie for why she's not back yet. Yeah. Remember? And it kind of plays in, in, a, in a pretty good way as well. Sorry, I'm going to pick more stuff apart over these next few movies than I usually do. But the next few scenes, we just see them around a lake, which we later find out is right outside the house. Yeah. And they're like on a ledge. They're sitting by the trees. It just keeps like montaging back and forth. They're talking about how their tits are coming in. And you know, I'm serious. Like it's normal teenage girl stuff, all drinking booze, it's right? It's like, I didn't have these last year. You didn't know me back then, but I didn't have anything here. You know, it's just like, what the fuck is happening? Wes, what were you doing? <laughs> 70s weed. Well, he was also doing a lot of LSD, so who knows? Oh, yeah. That could be part of it. That explains the soundtrack and the uh, the credits in the movie. There you go. But then the girls prepare to drive to the slums, as the parents call it, to go to the show. And Phyllis is driving, and it's Mary's car, you find out later. I always thought it was hers, but she's driving kind of erratic and crazy. They're just fucking having fun being teenagers, right? Yeah. But the important thing in this scene is on the radio, you hear that there are three fugitives that have escaped from the local prison. You find out that they've committed rape and murder. And they killed some dogs on the way out. I don't know why they fucking make that a point to say. And apparently they don't like Wes Craven's son's balloon because it cuts <laughs> to Krug walking down the sidewalk and popping a kid's balloon with a cigar. And that's Wes Craven's son. He okay. threw him in there as a cameo. But it also says they have an unknown female driver and it keeps saying she's animal-like. I don't yeah. know why. It's really funny, but it, when you see her character, I mean, it's a good descriptor, but I don't know how you figure that out with a getaway driver. Yeah. But at this point, we're introduced to the gang, as I will call them, as they bathe and drink beer. We have Junior Stillo. He's the illegitimate son of Krug Stillo. And I just want to say Krug, Kruger. Yeah, yeah. He does that a couple of these things get reused later. Um, his dad keeps him hooked on heroin so he can control him. Also is apparently part frog. I mean, you just have to see the movie to get that. But <laughs> And then we see Krug Stillo himself. Life sentence. For the 1966 triple slaying of a priest and two nuns, Fred Weasel Podowski, child molestation, peeping Tomism, and assault with a deadly weapon. And all they say about Sadie is she's strong and animal-like. <laughs> I don't fucking get the animal references, but yeah. But she's taking a bath, and Junior takes her a beer, and you can tell that he's not used to being around ladies. That's kind of foreshadowed there because she's like pulling him in the tub, messing with him. Pops gets mad. She comes into the room with Weasel and Krug, and they're basically both trying to bang her at the same time. And Krug's like, this is my girl. Weasel's like, I thought it was our girl. And she's like, I'm nobody's girl. I'm not putting out anymore until there's a couple more girls around here. Equal representation. Right? <laughs> she also, like, misuses a couple of fucking quotes that are funny, and Weasel corrects her. And that's a part of that's supposed to be, like, Wes letting them do their own thing. And apparently Weasel improv a lot of the comedy. Okay. Which, uh, he's the porno guy because he's also funny. (laughs) 
But we cut back to the girls and they're getting ice cream and then they decide to go outside and see if they can find a dealer so they can score some pot before the show, right? And Mary's like, oh, this neighborhood's so dirty. There's trash everywhere. And you're supposed to really get how privileged and sheltered she is. Yeah. And they find Junior because Junior got kicked out of the apartment. And they ask him if he knows where they can get some drugs. And he's like, I don't know where to get that shit. And they start to walk off. And then the idea clicks. We need some more chicks around here, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, I got some weed. I'll sell you an ounce for $20. And they're like, $20? Wow. What's it from? <laughs> Columbia, man. <laughs> you know? And they ignorantly go inside with the stranger, which if Phyllis is supposed to be from the streets in the hood, it seems like she should know better. <laughs> you would think. I guess they're supposed to be like 15 or 16 or something, right? So I guess there's are still naive at this point. Yeah. But we immediately cut to the Collingwood's house and they're preparing for her birthday. They're putting happy birthday signs up. There's shit that says happy birthday, Mary. Like I said, the editing and the cuts are a fucking mess in this film, and I'm going to do my best to keep it together. Yeah, it's definitely weird, but it's playing off of the whole, the safe haven of home and the loving family and, and bad choices out in the, the big scary world. The way all this comes together, though, fucking clashing head on is awesome. Yeah. But to get there, we get these these cuts back and forth between the calling ones start making a birthday cake while there's fucking circus music playing. It's like some <laughs> Benny Hill shit. I know. I didn't really get it. I don't know. It was the 70s. I'm just going to keep saying that as an excuse a lot. But it also cuts to the girls getting brought in the apartment. The gang getting the jump on them, locking them in, threatening them, beating them, and then fucking raping them. Yep. And the look, you don't see Phyllis get raped. It's no. off camera. It is. The implications are high. Yeah. But the look on Mary's face while you hear her being raped is fucking disturbing. Honestly, the look on Mary's face with the sound in the background to me was more disturbing. I think if I would have, than if I would have seen Phyllis getting raped. I mean, right. I, I don't have it to compare to, but like <laughs> she, her acting. And from my understanding, she was disturbed the whole time making this movie was fucking terrified yeah. of that the male actor. She didn't want to be anywhere near him. And apparently David Hess stayed in character. He, he seems like a really nice guy in every interview I saw, which we say that a lot. Like Kane Hodder <laughs> looks like he's a fucking teddy bear. Yeah. Scary motherfucker in movies. Right. But David Hess just seems like a normal music. He just seems like a musician. Yeah. When you see him get interviewed and not an actor, I think that might've been more of his forte, but he was into this character and she was terrified. And you can see that on her face. Like I said, rape is uncomfortable. And the first one, they don't make you watch it. Yeah. You just have to hear it and see somebody's reaction to it. And that was enough. Yeah. The rest of it's left up to your own construct in your mind. You know, that's that one was the rest of them. No, are no, not. no, no, no. The rest of them, but I'm just saying in that one scene and that, but yeah, it's like, well, fuck, it's like music. Sometimes the notes you don't play are just as important as the notes you do play. This is like that Eli Roth filmmaking. To in a way, extent. with Wes Craven. Yeah. In a, in a different way. But Wes didn't stick with it. No. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know. He seems like the nicest guy. And I'm like, how did he come up with this fucking movie? This is also, though, like I said, this isn't a horror movie. It is a horrific movie. And it's also very realistic. There's a lot of happenstances. Yeah. That are a little convenient, but this could fucking happen every day. Like I said, we're going to follow my daughters to every concert they go to. Okay. <laughs> Deal. We're making a pact right now. They better be going to punk rock shows and we'll be there anyways. <laughs> we'll still be fucking 
skanking right in the pit. <laughs> no, I'll be in the back by the bar. <laughs> Honestly, that's what happens nowadays. But uh, we get an early next morning title card pop up on the screen. We see the gang taking the girls down a fire escape and putting them in the trunk of a car. And it's not the same car they drove, so it's assumed stolen, right? Yeah. We cut back to the Collingwood residence, and they're scared that their daughter's missing. And now the phone works, thank God, they say. But Pops isn't worried. He's like, hey, she's got this friend. She's rebellious. She's becoming a woman. She's just making a sweat it. Let her sow her seeds, blah, blah, blah. She's having a good time. She'll show up, right? It's kind of weird. The dad's like, yeah, just go with it. (laughs) You'd figure it'd be the other way around, the mom and dad, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's every kid's rite of passage. You know, don't be freaking out. But as lax as Pops is about it, Mom's fucking pissed, to say the least. Yeah. We then cut to the gang driving the car. Well, Junior's driving the car. Sadie's fucking riding Krug. (laughs) And Weasel's complaining about, like, jobs and salaries and how shit isn't fair. Shut up, Weasel. You're disturbing my rhythm. And then we cut back to the Collingwoods, and the sheriff's now in the house eating the fucking birthday cake. Right? (laughs) He's not questioning. He's not looking for evidence. He's, He's eating the fucking birthday cake. cake. <laughs> but we also see at the same time, like I said, lots of hard cuts. The car, the getaway car breaks down and they don't know how to fix it, right? Like Krug's fucking with it. Junior's fucking with it. Krug's making fun of Junior for not knowing how to fix the car, but the yeah. Krug can't fix it himself. And they get the girls out of the trunk and Phyllis bites Krug's hand. And while Krug's going off on Phyllis, Mary realizes they're like 10 feet from the fucking mailbox at her house. Yep. So she thinks they have a chance. And that's where, like, the happenstance and the convenience is a little high, but it really doesn't pay off. Yeah. Yet. They're all in a rape, right? <laughs> like, let's take the girls into the woods and have some fun with them. And they're, you got to think they're wanted fugitives. And this is the first thing that comes to their mind. Yeah. That's why they're criminals and in jail, right? Or were in jail. Exactly. Their cheese has done slid off their cracker. Right. <laughs> but they take them in the woods and the cops are seen leaving the Collingwood residence. And they see the car and they're because somewhere in there, the deputy pops in and he's like, is there any more of that cake? That's all he has to say. Yeah. And then they leave and they see the car and he's like, oh, I guess somebody's car broke down. Yeah. Let's go to the office. It's really bad. Yeah. They comment on it and it's like, oh, that's none of our concern. But back in the woods, they untie the girls and Krug makes Phyllis piss her pants and then take them off. Now, the actress who played Phyllis said that they actually made her piss her pants. She said that before, supposedly. Yeah. Cunningham and Craven said they just used a wet sponge and stuck it on her. I don't know. And I got to say, that's the first scene in the movie. Sorry if this makes me sound fucked up because there's already been a rape, but that's the scene in the movie where I start to get uncomfortable when it, cause it's the whole thing of how degrading that is and using the other girl as a weapon because he says, do it or I'm going to cut her. Exactly. And she doesn't do something and they cut Mary before that. And I don't think it makes you a fucked up person. The rape happens very quickly off camera. Yeah. Degrading was the best word you could use. This is the first, like, let's abuse these fucking girls on the camera that we see. But not only do they make her piss her pants, but they make her start fucking punching Mary. But Junior gets a conscience. I don't know if it's because he's really on the heroin or really off the heroin. It's one extreme or the other. Yeah. But you see that beat through with him a couple of times. Yeah. But he's like, make them stop hurting each other. He doesn't want them to fucking beat each other's ass, right? So he breaks it up and he's like, how about we watch them make it with each other instead? And we've already seen that Sadie likes girls. 
as well as guys. Yeah. And the guys definitely like girls. So they're like, yeah, let's do this. And we get another uncomfortable off-screen rape. But this time it's the two girls. They force the two girls on each other. Yeah. Phyllis has a line like, it's just you and me in the room. Ignore everybody else. Nobody else is here. It's just us. According to Craven, that was improv That was part of the freedom. That's actually one of the best lines in the movie to me. Yeah. But that's true. But it, the camera fades out, and then it cuts back, and I, I believe they're both like, you know, putting the clothes dressed. back yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, but like, so we know what happened. And it was the 70s. It was different times, so they're both like really disgusted yeah. with what they had to yeah, do. Yeah, it's not like this was a socially acceptable norm thing. But we cut back to the dumbass cops in the police station. And they're bitching about their job and how they have to fucking waste time looking for this girl. And then the radio chimes in in the office and it says that the gang's headed their direction, basically, in this model stolen car. Yep. Which the deputy's like, oh, shit, that's the fucking car we saw. They're fucking just dumb as shit. Honestly, it's my least favorite part of the movie is how dumb the cops are. It is. You could have the cops be incompetent at doing detective work because they're small town like outside of yeah, the city. Yeah, nothing ever happens. But they made them Barney Five comical. You said it best. And I really feel like it's out of place in this disturbing movie. It is. There's a disconnect, I feel like, in a lot of Wes Craven movies. Maybe even all of them. Where it's serious and funny. And I feel like it pulls too hard in two different directions. And then it finally paid off in Scream. Well, that's because somebody else wrote it. And I don't, I mean, it sounds like a dig, but I'm being serious. Craven always wanted to put comedy in there. And I don't think he ever figured out exactly the right way to get it in there until I really would love to see, I think it's out there, the original screenplay for uh, Dream Warriors, just to see how much comedy was written into that. But I mean, even look at New Nightmare. There's some, there's a couple of hints of decent comedy in it. Nightmare had comedy, but it was very scarce. Like uh, Johnny Depp playing the special effects tape. Yeah, that, and I woke up with a heart on this morning. There's four letters in my name. How's there enough room on your joint for four letters? Yes, yeah, so I mean, but it was, it was very great. lightly sprinkled. He could have overdone in that movie, and he didn't. Yeah. But well, he, I, was, he was learning. The cops were too goofy to me in this movie, yes. and I will always say that. <laughs> but the cops depart the station to start looking for their fugitives. We cut back to Krugan gang, and he's like, I'm going to go find something to cut some firewood, you know, to heat things up. Which I took as, I'm going to go find a machete and go Colombian drug lord on their asses <laughs> and get rid of the body parts. Which is mostly accurate. In a roundabout way. This is where we first cut back and see the girls, though, after the off-screen rape. And Phyllis convinces Weasel to let them get dressed because they're cold. But as soon as they have their clothes on, Phyllis makes a break for it. She says something to Mary right before she runs. Yeah. Sadie and Weasel go chasing Phyllis down through the woods and they leave Junior to watch Mary because they're all scared of Krug. Yeah. And Krug's off looking for fucking machete, <laughs> chainsaw, Hanzo, katana, whatever the fuck you can find in the woods randomly to cut these motherfuckers up. I usually get my katanas in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> but Mary's trying to convince Junior that he's a good guy. And he doesn't want to be a part of this. And his name's Willow, not Junior. Yeah. And he is so fucked up. And she's like, oh, but the girls are all over. And he's like, no. And she's getting a little flirty. And she's like, here's my necklace. It's peace, man. You know, my dad's a doctor. He's got methadone in the fucking house. Let me yep. take you to it. And she's trying anything she can. And that just kind of shows you like the, the street girl pushed and ran 
And the privileged girl's like, my daddy can get me out of this. Yep. And you see a little bit of that struggle there. Yes, daddy will save us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I want Jeffrey Combs in more movies. Like, can we just insert him? <laughs> but Weasel and Sadie continue to chase Phyllis. And Phyllis actually manages to get the jump on Sadie and hits her in the head with a fucking rock. Because they, they all got a little bit separated from each other. Yeah. And she makes it to a cemetery where, ironically, she's out of breath and stops to take a break. Now, here's the thing, though. They're, like, supposed to be in their 30s and 40s, and some of them have been in prison. They obviously do a bunch of drugs and drinking. They can outrun the 16-year-old girl. More stamina. Maybe they're all hopped up on PCP. We don't know. But she runs in a crew who's found the fucking machete I was talking about. <laughs> but then the gang starts to surround her, and she's just crying and, like, no, and trying to look because they've, they've been circled around her. And she's more focused on Krug with the machete and Weasel stabs her in the back with this fucking stiletto that we've seen. Yeah. She falls down bleeding. She's trying to crawl away just to make it even more degrading since it wasn't enough. Apparently they're all kicking her while she's down and they actually let her crawl off into the woods because like she can't get very far. Yeah. We then cut to the super troopers. (laughs) And at this point they've ran out of fucking gas. Like what the fuck man. And they try to hitch a ride. From some damned hippies that hate the cops, right? That one, that whole bit with them in the interaction where they pull over and they're like, yeah, it's like, we fucking hate cops. That one was fine. Yeah. It's just some of the others were too much. Exactly. Cut back to the gang. They're finished toying with Phyllis and they take turns brutally fucking stabbing her to death. And honestly, I'd have to really sit back and reach into the deep recesses of my mind. But I want to say it's one of the most fucking graphic, disturbing kill scenes I've seen in a movie. Yeah, I mean, there's still, what's weird is how it's done, yes, and for the time, what was shown, absolutely. Um, It's another one of those where it's weird, because at the time, they're like, this is so graphic, you showed so much, and nowadays, it's like, we didn't see that much, but I still think it's graphic this day and age. It That's what I'm saying. It if If you pull away, once again, gore for the sake of gore versus disturbing and feeling real. And this is really disturbing and feels real. Oh, it's disturbing. All right. Sadie starts pulling her fucking intestines out of her gut. Yep. Like, where does that even come from? Animal like. Oh. I don't know, man. That's all I got. So apparently the, the guy on the broadcast said, uh, between her driving and her intestine pulling, she's an animal. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mary is still trying to talk Junior, or Willow as she's now calling him, and letting her go. She's actually on the run, pulling him behind her. And that's the scene where supposedly threatened to throw her off the cliff because she kept fucking it up. Okay. But Krug and gang stops him because they heard him running off. And she wants to know if Phyllis got away. And they shake their head no and then throw her fucking dismembered hand at her. Yep. They cut Phyllis's hand off and brought it back just to show her these people are fucked up. Yep. They then start to cut her and Krug actually carves his fucking name in her chest. If it wasn't degrading enough, I just keep saying that. And then he fucking rapes her. This one's on camera and disturbingly graphic. And I can only imagine how bad it would have been if this movie was had the hardcore porn they originally intended. Yeah. It's fucking uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. And it's a lot like uh, I spit on your grave really pulls from this this scene like almost straight up. I Spit on Your Grave, original and remake, have always been fucking difficult for me to watch. The only reason why I even like watch them, normally I would just, it's torture porn. I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
I fucking love watching the girl go back and kick all their fucking asses and murder them afterwards. Yeah. Like, she's a badass heroine in the movies after the fact and got stronger from this terrible thing that happened. And if that didn't happen, if the police just called them, or maybe even if the parents just got revenge, I don't think I could watch a spit on your grave. Well, I think, is it the remake where she gets the guy up the ass with the shotgun? Yes. Because he was the one who's, when they're raping her, it's like, I'm sorry, honey, I'm a backdoor kind of guy. Yeah. And then when she gets him, she ties him up and she's like, I'm sorry, I just have to go on offshoot here. She gets him tied up and shoves a shotgun up his ass like, sorry, I'm a backdoor kind of girl. And the rig that he's on, if he moves, he's going to have his innards blown apart and he moves. And yeah, that's fun because they deserve it. Um, once again, violence for the sake of violence and rape certainly for the sake of rape is doesn't have a place. No, I actually saw one of the documentaries showed some script scenes like the guy shoved things up their anuses or rectums. I don't remember what it said in the script. It was a lot more graphic what happened to these girls. Yeah. And when the girls were actually reading their lines on the casting couch, they were seeing the scenes and they're like, I can't fucking do this. And Wes is like, don't worry, we already rewrote it and tamed it. Ignore anything graphic you see on the script, (laughs) which they did cut all that shit out, but it's still pretty fucking graphic. Yeah. But anyways, like I said, Krug is raping her on camera this time. And luckily for her, at least he's in and done. She didn't have to deal with it that much, but she gets up and she's obviously fucking disturbed about it. Gets dressed, walks into the bushes and just starts fucking vomiting. And then does the now lay me down to sleep prayer, which Wes Craven regularly uses in his films down the road. Yep. That and, uh, carving words into people's flesh yeah but for some reason this scene i don't necessarily like this scene the gang actually looks disturbed and bothered by everything that just happened i know they all look sad they look depressed i mean it's just like maybe her praying i don't know provided the power of jesus i don't know but these motherfuckers don't care the rest of the movie and they do in this scene and that, that always stuck with me and kind of bothered me but it's really powerful how much they seem disturbed by it. Yes, because they seem they seem very remorseful. And uh, after they kill her, we get that, that again before they wash up. They're like stuck in this zone. And it isn't until after they've washed up and changed that they're quote unquote back to them, their normal selves. Which I'm glad it did not stick with the remorsefulness. I, I don't like seeing that in movies. I do not like seeing people do fucked up horrific shit like this and then like being forgiven for it. Yeah. Like they need well, to go. And that's so awesome that you just said it that way, because this is one of the things that I really feel was an indictment of religion that how can you do all this and just be forgiven? Yeah. I'm, I have to touch. I normally don't get into shit like that in these movies, but these, I, I have to touch on on some of them. But while they're disturbed, they just let her walk past and she just looks crazy. And honestly, she didn't do a whole lot of acting after this. And I don't blame her because this movie probably fucked her up. That's a fucked up start. But she's fantastic in it. The yeah. faces of fear and depression and everything are amazing. They just let her walk to the lake and she just gets into it. I don't know if she feels like she's cleaning herself or if, if I get across this lake, I'm home to mommy and daddy. I really think she was just trying to, to clean herself. It's like the, the rape victim in the shower type. It thing. could be, but she says earlier in the movie, my house is just across the lake. She says that's a junior. So I almost wonder, like, Uh she's just so delirious from being raped and watching her friend be raped and being forced to have sex with her friend and seeing her friend's dismembered hand and the blood all over that she's like, maybe they'll just let me walk home now. Yeah, she's just numb and bearing 
bearing towards home. I didn't even think about that. But Krug pulls out a six shooter and he shoots and kills her in the lake. And honestly, it's one of the more graphic, realistic looking shootings. I think there's music playing in the background and he fires the shot and the music just stops, just fucking flips over floating in the water. It's very disturbing, very yep. graphic, just like the rest of this fucking movie. Yep. And normally I just, I don't like torture porn and like the shock factor shit. I don't know if it's just because of the time of this movie that I can watch this one. I don't even say over and over again. I've really only seen this movie three or four times in my entire life. Yeah. But I don't know. This It's one of the few horror movies I can watch and it honestly bothers me to my core. And I hate that. I know I keep saying that, but it's just like, I don't know. I can't really, I feel like I'm not stressing it enough. Well, it just goes to show that it was a powerful film. But then, you know, this was serious. Let's cut back to the fucking dumbass cops. And they're talking about they've been walking for hours. They still got 10 miles to go. Let's break that tension. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. It's not well done. <laughs> but the deputy's like, hold on. And he fucking puts his ear down to the fucking road. <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are, Tonto? And apparently the deputy's right because a chicken truck pulls up with Ada who's trying to do the math on how many chickens she has and how much they weigh versus the chicken coops. And she tells them to get up on top of the car because there's no seats left. So they crawl up on top of the truck. <laughs> but the truck's over the weight limit and it won't take off. So it throws them in the street. Just so much ill-placed comedy, in my opinion. Yeah, but she's great. I still love her. <laughs> she's funny. He had to put his nanny in there, right? Sean Cunningham? Yeah. We cut back to the gang and they're cleaning off all the blood and for some reason have another set of clothes on them. I don't know why. And these are nicer clothes. Well, Suits, they, nice sweaters. They had stuff in the car. I gave that a pass because they're 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 on the run. So I'm assuming everything they have that they're they're trying to keep with them is in the car. So maybe they had that shit nearby. I don't know. But we cut back to the Collingwoods and the movie is we're about five minutes away from it being the rapid third act of the film. And <laughs> it really is so rapid once the, we get going here. Yeah. But they're stressing out their house. Oh my God, we don't know where Mary's at. Oh, but we have some visitors. Surprise! It's the fucking gang and they're in disguise and like Krug and Sadie are married and I don't know, Weasel and Junior work with them and they run some business. I don't even remember their bullshit story. It was fucking terrible. And they just need a ride to town right but mary has the car and she's not back yet yep and the parents go out of the room they're like oh you can stay with us let us go get mary's room ready in the guest room and you guys can stay weasel realizes they're in the middle of nowhere and he takes the phone line and he cuts it well he cuts the power cord for the tv because earlier when they're in their their hotel room or whatever they're doing news reports I didn't even catch that because the dad later says, oh, the phones are out again. And I just kind of thought he cut the phone line, but he is standing by the TV when he does it. Yeah. He unplugs it and cuts it and then throws it behind the TV. Okay. I just thought it was the phone line for some reason, but he, somewhere he cuts the phone line off screen then because it's referenced that the phones are out again. Well, unless they're just out. As fixed to say, they set up this dumb back and forth with the it, phones being problematic. Who fucking knows? I tried to give more credit when I saw kind of came <laughs> But the family shows the gang to the room. And while they're in there, Weasel starts going through pictures and he figures out that it's fucking Mary's house. By the way, the cops are still fucking walking. It cuts back to them. In the house, though, everyone's eating spaghetti dinner, except for Junior. He's sleeping in the room, sweating out withdrawals, right? Yeah. The Collingwoods, though, are not dumb and they realize shit's up. They see bite marks on people. They see bruises and scrapes. They notice they're eating very uncivilized and just like slopping shit down. Like animals. <laughs> and they're telling stories that 
do not make any sense about like their jobs and, and while they're there, they're not good backstories. Is this where they have the whole bit about they, what, well, what do you do? And they say plumbing and insurance at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, we sell insurance for plumbers in case they break something. Okay. Yeah. And it, it does a good job of cutting to the parents. Like you guys are full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Meanwhile, Junior's having nightmares and screaming that he's sorry out loud. So Krug and Sadie have to run in there and shut him the fuck up. Yep. Later that night, though, Junior's continuing to go through withdrawals and he's fucking vomiting in the bathroom and Estelle comes in there to check on him. She notices Mary's peace necklace on Junior's neck and she starts putting two and two together. She Plays it calm and cool. The mom's fantastic in this movie, by the way. This was her only acting credit. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't fucking know why. Yeah, she's she's pretty damn good. But she helps him to his room, and then she decides to go through their things, because their bags, they were supposed to stay in two rooms. They all end up staying in one together. They left the bag in the other room. So she's going through the bag, and she finds clothes covered in blood while hearing them say, I hope they don't figure out we killed their fucking daughter. Something about them killing the fucking daughter. Yep. We then cut to a scene of John and Estelle running down through the woods to the lake and they find Mary's corpse. I'm going to come back on a lot of this corpse and lake stuff at the end. Okay. Cause there's okay. some cut scenes, but then we cut to, to me, it was obviously a nightmare. It really, you know, an American werewolf in London. Yeah. When he's having like the Nazi dream, like yeah. it really felt like that jarring to me. Absolutely. But Weasel's having a nightmare, and he wakes up to Estelle and John in scrubs, and they have a fucking chisel and a hammer, and they start, you don't see him chisel the teeth out, but you hear it, right? Yeah. And he wakes up screaming. According to the actor, that was also his idea. Really? If he's true on all this, he came up with a lot of good scenes. Was he also the one that- that Directed Ass Blaster 13? Yeah. I don't know. Some (laughs) of- I'm making up the name, but when I clicked on IMDb, this is how I figured out he was a porno director. And I saw, I was like, oh, he's directed a lot of movies. And I click on it and I see the titles and I was like, oh my. <laughs> but is he the one that, I remember hearing an interview with uh, Craven where he was talking about somebody from the movie that was constantly going around doing interviews saying, oh yeah, yeah, we're working on on Last House too. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to be in it. And blah, blah, blah. And it's like, he really likes to just come up with shit and run his mouth. I don't know. But I don't remember which actor he was talking about. Could have been him. Like I said, on the interview, he was like, Sean and Wes probably won't give me credit where credit's due, but I came up with this shit. Who fucking knows? Oh. But this is the third act here. This is the last, I don't know, 12, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. All very quick. Cuts back and forth. Bear with me, okay? We see John in the basement looking for a weapon, and he picks up a wrench and a fucking trash can lid, and he bangs it on there like a sword and shield, 300 style. It's fucking go time, right? (laughs) Then he says it's a bad idea, and he just grabs the fucking shotgun that he just had hanging there. There you go. I don't know why we have that scene. Just have him get the fucking gun out of the basement, right? Yeah. But while this is going on, Weasel walks in on Estelle drinking and shaking, right? She knows what's going on. And he's hitting on her a little bit and she flirts back. And he's like, I can show you things your husband never could. Let's go to the couch. And the camera pans and Mary's dead bodies on the couch. And she's like, no, 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 let's go outside so my husband won't find us, right? Yeah. And he's telling her how he could he could make love to her with his hands tied behind his back, and she wouldn't even know what happened to her, right? Now, he actually did that in Ass Blasters 4. <laughs> <laughs> I swear one of the movies was named something crazy like that. 
While we see all this going on, John's booby trapping the house. He runs electrical wire from an outlet to like a doorknob and the mat at the front door. And correct me if I'm wrong, does he wet it? Yeah. So shock the fuck out of anybody trying to make it out the front door. And he just very simply rubs shaving cream on the hardwood floor outside of the bedroom. Yep. Door where they're at, which would work. I've accidentally done this with fucking furniture polish or anything a couple of times in <laughs> socks. Furniture polish and socks on hardwood floors is a dangerous fucking thing. <laughs> Trying to do the coffee table you missed. You go to the bathroom, you hear the fucking doorbell ring, you run, and bam, I just got knocked the fuck out. Yep. But this is a common theme of Wes Craven with the booby traps. At least oh, yeah. this and Nightmare, right? Well, even the hills. Yeah, yeah. It, actually, you're right. He likes his booby traps. And honestly, that's my... One of my favorite parts in Iron Man Elm Street's Nancy with the booby traps. He does it again in People Under the Stairs. Okay. I haven't seen that one in a long time. So, but yeah, it's a common theme, right? But we start to cut back between what's going on with Estelle and what's going on with John. Yeah. Right. And it, it does a lot of hard cuts and I'm just going to kind of tell them as two stories. Okay. So from John's perspective, he's got his gun. He sneaks in the room where everybody except for Weasel sleeping. He's got the rifle. Krug wakes up. Pulls the cord on the lamp so it goes dark. Dives for John, who makes a wild shot. Clips him in the shoulder. And then John makes a run for it. Yeah. Jumps over the shaving cream. Yep. Krug busts his ass on it. And they duke it out in the living room. John gets some good hits in, but Krug whoops his ass, quite yeah. frankly, right? And Krug pins John up against the wall, strangling him. And then Junior comes in cocking Krug's pistol. And he's like, just stop. You just got to stop. Because obviously he's been remorseful this whole time. And Krug lets go of John, just starts telling Junior how worthless he is, and I should just fucking kill himself and blow his own brains out. Yeah, it's like, I want you to put the gun in your mouth and blow your brains out. And he complies. <laughs> he does it. He blows his fucking brains out. According to the actor that plays Weasel, this is one of his ideas again. He said, go down to the Greek restaurant, get some goat brains, throw that shit on the wall. I don't know if it's true, but he said it on camera, so I have to put it out there. <laughs> it worked. During all this time, though, Sadie's sneaking down the hallway and Krug makes a run for the door. Gets electrocuted, but he gets yeah. the door open. Yeah. And Sadie runs out. Meanwhile, it cuts back and forth to Estelle and Weasel outside. And she's, oh, I've never done this before. I've never cheated on my husband. Didn't you say you could, you could do me with your hands tied behind your back? And he's like, oh, yeah, I can show you. So she takes his, I think it's his tie or belt or something. Something. Ties his hands behind his back. Gets his dick out. And once again, the actor says that he was like, oh, you guys don't know how to do the scene right. We'll put a belt, have it hanging out through the hole in the pants, and she can bite on the belt and yank on it. Oh, okay. And it'll look real instead of her just shaking her head. I believe this one because he's a fucking porno star and a porno director. Yeah. It's like, now the genitalia is involved, we believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I'm going to feel really bad if these were all his ideas. But I don't know, man. She gives him a hand job. He's like, oh, I'm about to come. I'm about to come. And then she starts to blow him. Right. And I'm, this never really made any sense to me. And I'm going to clarify this later because she just wants to kill him. I don't know why she has to like fucking give him a handy and a BJ. Yeah. But then she bites his fucking dick off and spits it in the lake. Yep. And he's just left there, I guess, to bleed to death, which I think that happens in I spit on your grave, right? Dick removal with bleeding to death. Possibly. I can't remember. But Mama Estelle fucking spits the cock out in the lake and he's on the ground crying and I don't know. <laughs> it's fucked up. Well, and then, then this rat comes up along the shoreline. <laughs> no, no, reanimator three, stay out of my podcast. I'm having nightmares. 
Oh my God. But no, and honestly it, though, her biting his dick off and spitting it out was less disturbing to me than the right. It was. And that's what I was just fixing to bring up. Like this scene, like I can, I can laugh at what's happening to this guy and I can feel good about it because he deserves it. But this was the scene, like even the rape and everything, like this was the part where people are like, oh my God, she just bit his dick off. Like <laughs> we flirted with other things in films before, but she bit his fucking dick off. And honestly, when, when that happened the first time I saw this movie, I just kind of froze. Like, what the fuck just happened? It's like, what year did this movie come out? That was the thing. Like, I was shocked that they bit a dick off in 72. I know. But it happened. <laughs> but we cut back to Krug, who's been in La La Land from getting electrocuted, most likely pissed and shit himself. Yeah, most just, likely. Just throwing that out there. And he's like, oh. Which way did it go, George? And then here's a fucking chainsaw crank. And it's John in the basement with a chainsaw. Now, I originally read they had a different idea for a weapon. I, I wish I could remember what it was, but they're like, how about we just use a fucking chainsaw? And honestly, it was the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, he runs to check out the basement, sees John with the chainsaw, slams the wooden door shut and latches it, which slows John down for all about two seconds. Okay. Yeah, and I like that because he doesn't go buck wild. He's smart enough that he makes two quick cuts just to cut around the lock and bust through the door. Right. And at this point, the sheriff and the deputy are showing up, okay? So the sheriff's coming in the house just in time to see John slam the fucking chainsaw on a Krug's torso and kill him. And this was after there's a little bit of back and forth in the room where John's got the chainsaw and Krug's holding a chair up like a lion tamer. And this imposing, scary motherfucker for this whole movie looks more fearful than I've seen most characters in movies. Yeah, he he knows it's about to come and it's not going to be fun. Yeah, he's like, I'm pinned in a corner in a living room. Where the fuck do I go? But while that's happening, the deputy catches Estelle outside with Sadie. And when Sadie ran outside the door, Estelle actually tackled her and hit her with a rock, making her drop the stiletto switchblade. Yep. And you think like, oh, how's mama going to kick some ass here? And Sadie whoops her ass, quite frankly. Yeah. But she can't find her knife and she takes off running into a dark part of the yard where she falls into a swimming pool. When she's trying to climb up the ladder, Estelle picks up the switchblade and she has this fucking crazy mad dash with the knife by her side. <laughs> I actually love the cinematography, the stance and everything. It's creepy as fuck. Because does doesn't she do like a, a, like a ninja thing? Like, yeah, and it's off to her side. Yeah. And just fucking straight up slit Sadie's throat, killing her. The deputy brings Estelle in the house while the sheriff disarms John of the chainsaw. And then we get this weird fucking music number (laughs) where the music's way too happy. And we see every cast member with their name under it. And you know what it makes me think of? The fucking Saturday Night Live, like opening. Like the opening. I shit you not. It's just like the happy music. And they're like smiling at the camera like, hey. Right. The end. Music from everyone's favorite rapist. Um, because it was David S. did the music, right? <laughs> and that's the end of the fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. So what a place. The whole movie's out of place, though, in its own way. So there are some cut scenes of this movie that have been seen by other people. And honestly, they fixed one of my main complaints with the movie. I just didn't understand why Estelle would give Weasel a hand job and a blow job and then bite his dick off. Like, okay, trying to get his dick off, I guess it's some form of justice, but she just wants to kill him, right? Yeah. Well, originally, Mary didn't die in the lake. They did shoot her. But in the scene where you see them taking their clothes off and washing the blood off, you see her grab onto a log in the background. They dissolve the shot before the log scene because they didn't have a way to reshoot it. Okay. So you didn't see that. 
And then when John and Estelle find Mary, she's still alive at the lake. And that's why she's just laying on the shore and her eyes kind of blink a bit, right? Yes. And it's because she was alive originally in the script. And she tells them everything, the kidnap, the rape, what was done to him. And they actually get her back to the house because he's a doctor to try to save her. And she dies on the couch. Yeah. She knows that they raped her daughter and she's getting fucking justice on that dick for it. You know what I mean? And it makes that make a lot more sense. And honestly, I would have, I wish they would have kept that. Yeah. And I believe they do in the remake. I think Mary makes it back to the house alive in the remake. I've only seen the remake in pieces. Same for me. And it's been a hot minute. It was one of those like uh, my old roommate had a decent DVD collection that he got when he was in the Marine Corps, right? Okay. <laughs> and sometimes when I was cleaning house, I'd pop a DVD in and start watching it. And it's like, I've already seen it. When I did this with the Aspen on Your Grave remake, I kind of stuck it, stuck the landing more. But uh, <laughs> I kind of want to go back and rewatch the remake now. Yeah. It's a very prolific movie for its time. Very prolific for Wes Craven's career. Yeah. I stand by it being one of the most fucked up films I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and it's so fucked up because it's so real. And I hate to say it, but this is the kind of shit that you you read in fucking police reports. Maybe the chainsaw part's a bit much. But, I mean, this is the kind of shit that happens, and it's the kind of shit that happens nearby. And not only was the movie impactful, um, it made money, right? <laughs> Money's actually a funny part of this story. It did do well in the box office. I don't remember how much it made. Um but I do know that Sean and Wes said they could make the movie for $40,000. So they asked for 50 and they were going to act like it cost 50 and pocket five grand each. <laughs> the studio then offered them 90. Wes didn't say in the interview what they did with the extra $50,000. I don't know if they pocketed it or if they, you know, up the budget on something. I do know that Wes had to have another job while they're making this movie. And he was off working at the other job when Sean called him. Okay. And Wes just assumed that the movie had been pulled from theaters. And he was like, Wes, they're fucking lining up around the block. <laughs> so that was kind of a cool piece to, to hear. And, and the movie was successful. I just don't remember how successful. Yeah. And then you got to do inflation and shit because it was 1972. True. That's too much math for uh This isn't a normal weekend episode for Josh and I. This is uh, <laughs> after work on a Tuesday. <laughs> Terrible so idea. One more thing here. It did do well enough that there was a rush of knockoffs. There was an Italian film that came out right after it called Last House on the Left 2. They either, they either made it last, used the exact same name or made it Last House on the Left 2. I forget which one it is. It had nothing to do with the movie. And there was like the house at the end of the street. And, you know, there was a slew of movies that tried to tried to cash in on that. There is a Jennifer Lawrence movie that I watched on Netflix one night that I believe is called the house on the end of the street. And it's pretty recent, obviously, because there's Jennifer Lawrence in it. And that may be the remake of the one I'm talking about. I honestly pulled that name out of my ass, oh, but, okay. but that's a, that's, it, that is a movie and it really doesn't have anything to do with this movie. Yeah, there was a lot of knockoff titles trying to cash in on it. So we have Wes Craven's dark, depraved beginnings. And then we make it to his next film, Five years later in 1977 with The Hills Have Eyes. Yep. And this one, I'm going to get into this one pretty quickly here. There's quite a large cast. And I know a lot of these people went on to do other things, but there's two in particular for me, at least. Um, fuck it. I guess I'll read through all of them. I can take up D Wallace for you. <laughs> I mean, we got E.T. Howling. Cujo. One of my fucking favorites. Critters. Yeah. Frighteners. 
She sh- yeah, she shows up again in The Frighteners. Yeah. And that was Peter Jackson doing his fucking throwbacks. And this was pretty much the jump start of her career. Um, the other big one for me is fucking Michael Berryman, which will forever, for me, I'll remember him as one of the motorcycle mutant motorcycle gang in Weird Science. That is fucking, I love that role. He's so scary. He's so terrifying. And then like he's apologizing for what him and his friends did to the house. He's the nicest gentleman in the world. And that's how he is when you see him in interviews. He's a smart dude. And I forget the name of his condition. In this day and age, you you wouldn't see casting like this because it would be like, oh, well, you're just using them because they have a disability or a deformity or whatever. He's great. And he went on to do a fuck ton of small stuff. But he just seems like he's another one of those guys that want to see him in interviews is like, I'd have a beer with you. <laughs> right, right. Did you know is one of the many things that's with his condition is he has no sweat glands. Yep. And they filmed that movie. It was over a month, right? Yeah. And it was 100 degrees in the fucking desert. It, it was over 120 some days. Holy shit. But he was just a trooper and he went with it. He's one of those big, gentle, giant teddy bears again. Yeah. Right? I mean. But we had uh, Susan Lanier, Robert Houston, uh, I guess I should say who they are. We had Susan Lanier as Brenda, Robert Houston as Bobby. I hate him. Um, <laughs> I just, he's, I don't like him. Um, Martin Spears, Doug, D. Wallace as Lynn, Russ Grieve as Bob, Big Bob, John Stedman as Fred, James Whitworth as Jupiter, Papa Jupiter, Virginia Vincent as Ethel, and Michael Berryman as Pluto, like we already mentioned, and Janice Blythe as Ruby. And <laughs> honestly, Berryman and Wallace were the only ones I recognized on a rewatch of this movie. Yeah, they're the and I just know I did some skimming and other people did work, but they're the ones that always jump out to me. Um, the movie, of course, was loosely based on the legend of Sawney Bean. Oh, I'm so glad you went into that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fucking fascinating story. According to the legend, the Bean Clan killed and ate over a thousand people yeah. over a 25 year span. And they were hiding out in a cave on Scotland's southwest end or something like that. But the thing about the story that intrigued Craven so much is once they were captured, they were tortured to death. And this whole idea of these people torture and eating people and then their comeuppance being tortured in front of each other's family member is what he wanted to play with. And in a lot of ways, if you take that and a movie that this paid homage to, admitted by Craven, which is fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you take Texas Chainsaw and Last House and put them in a box and shake them up and throw them out, you could end up with this movie. There's a lot of elements pulled from both. You get the weird hillbilly cannibal family feeling from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Wes Craven admittedly was a huge Toby Hooper fan, and he fucking loved that film. And I get that, but that's about it that I get from it. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a far superior film to this movie. I'm not actually a fan of this movie. I'm not, but I like, this is one of those things where I say I love so much when we go back and look at stuff. I like seeing the sprinklings of ideas and systems and things that he always comes back to and where his brain already was that early in his career and where you get to see it gel and actually work later in his career. I will say this is one of those movies that I saw 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really far out of time. Yeah. Like I, I'm not ashamed to admit it as a huge horror fan. I never saw the Hills have eyes till I was a fucking adult. And it, I mean, maybe the datedness really maybe. ruined it for me. And it's just, it's really tame compared to last time. <laughs> For the most part, 
It we, is, except for one particular scene. You mean now we have rape again? What is with Wes Craven? Well, the rape in the movies. The rape scene isn't even that bad in this movie. But back to Texas Chancel. <laughs> Robert Burns was the art director on this movie. He was also the art director on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. Um, he was also the art director on The Howling and Reanimator. And he actually had set pieces and prop pieces from Texas Chainsaw, and that's what he used to decorate the Pax Cave. Oh, that's in, cool. In Hills Have Eyes, yeah. Um, the movie was originally called Blood Relations. If I remember correctly, they test screened it under different names, and Hills Have Eyes tested better. Don't hold me to that. Let me ask you this. Did Wes Craven like that name? I don't fucking remember. I know that he hated Last House on the Left as a name. I, I saw him reference the name of this movie, and I don't remember if he said he liked it or not, so I was just curious. Now, my most favorite, favoritest little piece of production trivia on here is uh, the movie was shot on rented 16 millimeter cameras from a porn house. <laughs> yes, I read that as well. <laughs> so was we, it the weasel connection? It could have been. Actually, it was probably a Peter Locke connection because he was a producer <laughs> on this. But it doesn't mean it wasn't because of movies that he was shooting with Weasel for all I know. I didn't go down that wormhole. I was I got to Deep Throat and I was like, enough people should know what that is. Moving I, on. <laughs> I do know that uh, Peter Locke was a for real on-set producer, though, on this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot of producers aren't. Like, the, the rattlesnake scene. She wouldn't touch the snake yep. unless he touched it first. So he touched it and then she grabbed it and then he stepped out and they said action. Well, the fact that, he, I mean, that that's Spielberg getting into the pool with the lights over well, it. Actually, if you fry, I fry. True. But since you brought that up, actually, he was an asshole about it. According to uh, the woman that played Ruby was that they had the discussion. She's like, yeah, if you do it, I'll do it. And he basically went and picked it up for two seconds and dropped it and said, there, I did it. Now you do it. <laughs> but we open with old man Fred in his little store in the middle of the desert. Which this is long before, and I know this was done in Texas Chainsaw, but this is long before that this was the harbinger that says, don't do this. And then it happens like this wasn't, keep in mind, a lot of the shit was fresh plot elements. Okay. I do want to laugh at the handwritten sign on the side of the building that thinks says no mo gas. Or something like that. <laughs> Straight up hillbilly talk. But, um, <laughs> so Ruby walks up and she's, she looks like the aftermaths of a bad acid trip, but Fred's like, Oh, you got yourself all dolled up. And, uh, interesting fact, she got the part because she won a foot race. Um, they had the girls together and it's like, you're going to be doing a lot of running in the desert. So we're going to see which one of you runs the fastest go. And everyone took off, but her. And she waited a few seconds and then went and blew past everybody. Right. I read that. I thought that was fascinating. Um, but she wants to trade. She, <laughs> she wants to trade. And Fred's like, no, that's over and done because now you've done ripped off the Air Force. Because like, what you you knocked over, blah, 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 blah. And what would she say? They stole the whiskey and the and bullets. Ra- whiskey and radios. And uh, Fred says he's uh, he's got nothing left and he's getting out of town. And she's like, well, then take me with you. And uh, he's, he asks her, he's like, does the pack know what you're up to? And Fred ends up locking her up as we hear a car pulling up. So automatically we already know she's weird, but they know each other. You right. know, obviously they've traded before and what is, what's the pack? Yeah, because he says he has nothing left to trade. And he also says that he doesn't want that trouble for taking her with them. And she yeah. doesn't want the trouble trying to run away, right? Exactly. So the Carter family rolls up and they got a baby. And they got two dogs, Beauty and Beast. I love the dog names, to be honest. Yeah. And we learn that they're on their way to California from Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, to be more specific, Craven's hometown. I didn't even think about that. 
But we've got uh, the mom, Ethel, ask Fred about the silver mine because it was left to her and her husband, Bob, and by their her aunt or something, I forget. And he's like, there ain't no silver left. Therefore, she uses this area as a bombing range. So you need to go on to California. <laughs> And uh, there's some more exchange and like Doug goes out back and thinks he hears something and you basically see Mercury free and Ruby, but you don't really see it. But you put two and two together later. And as they're driving off, Fred's yelling at him. Down the main road now, you hear? And clear the moors. <laughs> <laughs> but now we clearly see that Mercury has saved Ruby and he blows up Fred's truck. And we cut back to the Carters driving along and they're looking at the map. <laughs> The fucking Maverick comes in, right? And yeah, the da- the daughter Brenda starts reading the map, and she's like, Nellis Air Force Base, nuclear testing site close to the public. Holy shit, Daddy! <laughs> <laughs> and Bob tells everybody to shut up. They're not lost. And then a fucking jet buzzes them. And of course, that scares the hell out of all of them. Bob guns it, and the Geico Bunny of Doom is spotted in the middle of the road, and they swerve. (laughs) And I say the Geico Bunny of Doom because the old Geico commercial with the squirrels where they're going out in the road and making the cars crash. Because it's like this dramatic shot of a bunny. It's like, da-da! And what do you do? You swerve. I like to think this bunny makes a comeback later in the film. He does. So now they're stuck, and the car's fucked. And Bob goes on this rant about how all the times he almost died as a cop, but nothing is as bad as his wife. So... Brenda and Bobby, which are brother and sister of Ethel and Bob, they go wandering off and we see through binoculars that someone has spotted the wreck and we hear, pretty girl. There's Scout, if this is the scene I'm thinking of. When I hear him talk, he's got the really goofy cartoon voice, right? Yeah. You know what it makes me think of? What? I'm doing what mommy told me not to do. <laughs> fucking student bodies. I can't wait to somehow squeeze that fucking movie in here. Yes, we have to talk about that. So Bob says they're going to have to walk and he arms up along with Bobby and he's going to go back towards Fred's and Doug is going to go ahead and see if what's down the road. And he asks Lynn for his jacket and now Lynn, like we said, this is D fucking Wallace. She goes in and there's a tarantula on the jacket and supposedly there's no acting in this scene. She was fucking terrified of the tarantula. They made her sit there and put it on her arm to like bond with it. And it didn't fucking work. And that whole thing of her picking up the jacket and like shaking the fucking spider off and running off is supposedly not much acting. So it's like, if you would have put me in the scene, exactly. Funny animal story. Just, I got through it in there. Supposedly they lost the rattlesnake in the snake scene later in the movie. Yes. And they in there had to track it down. So between like the tarantula not bonding and the rattlesnake, they could have had a recipe for disaster with these fucking animals. Yeah. So not only the animals, it's like 100 degrees during the day, 30 degrees at night. The crew, I feel like a dickhead here, had just come off of doing like three pictures with another prominent director whose name is eluding me right now. And they're like, these fuckers don't know how to make a movie. But they made it through it. <laughs> but uh, the dogs are getting spooked by something. Like they're they're sensing something and Beauty's just fucking barking and barking. And Beast is quiet about it though, but just attentive because he's chained up outside. She's still inside the trailer. But Bobby says something about how Beast is, you know, all bite and no bark and that he'll sneak up and make noise when he needs to. And it's something about how, Oh yeah. Like the time he killed that poodle and like <laughs> dad never been so pissed off having to pay vet bills for a dead dog or <laughs> some shit like that. Somewhere in there, 
I think this is the same scene where something gets brought up about Sigmund Freud. And Bobby's like, well, Sigmund Freud would have something to say about you always talking about snakes or yeah. something like that. And uh, at some point, Brenda opens the fucking door to the camper and Beauty takes the fuck off. Oh, I just thought of something. Doesn't Sadie make like a Sigmund Freud reference in the Last House on the Left? She's like, I can't even look at the Grand Canyon anymore and not see a vagina and stuff like that. Maybe. And she can't say Freud because, you know, she gets like sayings wrong. Yeah. It's funny that he did that two movies in a row. Well, he was, remember, one of his majors was psychology. I know. Like, so it's, I'm starting to see more like reoccurring themes here. Uh Uh-huh. And that's what I find so fascinating that he talks about he loved literature that had reoccurring themes and that ended up being part of his shtick. But taken off into the desert, Beauty eventually finds something. We don't see it. We hear her bark, and then we hear her cry. Then silence. So Bobby finds what's left of Beauty, which was a real dead dog that they got from, like, the local sheriff's department or something. Yeah, that's what I read. But what you see, and that's kind of fucked up because that's what you, what you see on film is a dead dog. But We saw a dead cat in the refrigerator in Reanimator. Exactly. It all comes back to Reanimator, man. But Bobby gets spooked, and he runs off. Night falls, and back at the trailer, we've got Ethel calling for help on the radio. Maple, Maple, <laughs> it's Mama Bear. And Lynn takes the radio away from her, and she's like, it's Mayday, Mama. <laughs> and we see the pack can hear them, because the pack has fucking radios, because that's what they stole. Apparently, there's only two channels. <laughs> no, there were less channels in the 70s. <laughs> on TV, not fucking ham radios. Oh. <laughs> uh, Anyway, so the ladies hear this grunting over the radio, and there's like a little back and forth between uh, Ethel and Lynn about, you know, you know, oh, it's probably just some noise, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, that was somebody. So meanwhile, Brenda and Beast find Bobby wandering around in the darkness. But Bob makes it to Fred's, and he finds Fred trying to hang himself. I think he even makes a joke about it. like, this is how you greet all your patrons. <laughs> And he gets him down, and Fred tells him about the pack and the story of his second child. His second child came out sideways, 20 pounds, hairy as a monkey, and nearly tore his poor wife Martha apart. <laughs> it's pretty graphic. Yeah. And at 10 years old, he was throwing dogs down wells and biting the heads off of chickens. And then one day, he burned down the house with his other kid in it. And what Fred did was he split the poor boy's face open with a tire iron and left him out in the desert to die. Says he's been out there long enough to raise his own family with some whore nobody would ever miss. So we're starting to figure out that's what the pack is. And right. Like, Holy fuck, Fred, what'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's right. It's your fault. <laughs> it is. And right then Papa Jupiter busts through the fucking window, grabs Fred, drags him off and bashes in his head with a tire. iron. <laughs> <laughs> Poetic justice. Bob goes outside and he finds Fred's body hanging from the inside of the outhouse door with the tire iron stuck through him. And that's what he's hanging from. So that was kind of cool. We see something like that similar from other big baddies. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You mean my boy Mikey? Exactly. So Bob goes running back and is like running along the road. And he's, he's not an in shape guy and he's a little bit older. And I think he's already holding his chest while he's running down the road. And we hear, Daddy, help me. (laughs) And Bob collapses and shoots off into the darkness. Jupiter comes up, steps on his hand, fucking disarms him, and radios that they're almost ready. And I think there's actually another, oh, Daddy fell down, or Daddy's all done, or something like that. Because those are all lock, you said? 
I, you're hearing it on the radio. So sometimes it's hard to tell. One of the kids is a scout and he's always on top of the mountain yeah. with the binoculars. That's the one that but, gets it later. But th- he's the one that talks like the student body slasher. Well, him and Mars both. And then Pluto kind of goes back and forth because he like does the fake radio bit later on and <laughs> I love shit. love that part. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure who it is at that point. But we see Doug. He's making it back to the trailer. Bobby gives an update about, you know, dad hasn't come back. What are we going to do? Blah, 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 blah. Been hearing noises. And by now, Beast has run off and found what was left of beauty. And they're setting this up for this dog to actually avenge his <laughs> sister or wife or whatever's death. <laughs> I just talked about dogs being married. <laughs> dogs loving cats. What's this world coming to? End of the world kind of stuff. We cut back to Jupiter nailing Bob to a fucking tree with like pieces of bone and rock. And back at the trailer, Pluto is siphoning gas out of the wagon while Doug and Lynn are in there banging because they leave the other other two in the trailer and go out to sleep in the wagon. This is when Bobby finally breaks down and tells Doug and Lynn about beauty. And we see Pluto now on top of this is when because see this is there's so much fucking cutting back and forth here because it's it's while this is going on that Pluto gets into the trailer. Pluto's on top of Brenda hasn't done anything yet and just pulls out the radio and goes do it. And all of a sudden, there's a fucking explosion and fireball off in the distance. The whole family runs out of the trailer off towards that. And we hear Bob screaming, Ethel, put it out. Some of it's not very good. No. And this is when we see, uh, (laughs) yeah, everyone runs off thinking that Brenda's okay to watch the baby because there's this curtain pulled closed and they don't know that Pluto's in the back. (laughs) Mars goes in now as well. And he drinks the bird. Because they got this bird in a cage and he fucking pulls it out and literally just crushes it in his hand and drinks it like a Capri Sun. (laughs) (laughs) He finds Pluto and tells him he has to wait to become a man. I just want to say thank you for ruining my children's fruit snacks for me. (laughs) What, the Capri Sun? Yeah, man. And the fucking Kool-Aid burst. I won't ever look at it on the same way again. Uh, I wish I knew the bird's name. But this is when he finds, uh, he goes to rape her and finds the baby real quick. And he calls it juicy. And he's like, oh, that's going to be good. And like, Pluto, you mind, baby, I'm going to rape. Because they're very, he doesn't say all this, but they're very, <laughs> there's a lot they, of. They do refer to the baby as a juicy Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. But they talk like they're a little slow. You know, it's it's really done up real bad later on in the movie, actually. Which makes the fake radio call later make less sense. Except for, that's what I was saying. Pluto's the one that. He goes all over the place. Dad, Papa Jupiter talks a little weird the whole time. Mars is kind of just there and Mercury's fucking gone. (laughs) But meanwhile, we've got Ethel, Doug and Bobby finding Big Bob burning up. Now, supposedly the only tree they could find out there to shoot this scene was a Joshua tree, which was protected. And Craven and Locke said, fuck it and set it on fire anyways. Allegedly. (laughs) I'm just saying. So they put out Bob. They pull him down and Ethel straight up loses her shit and just starts going, that's not my Bob. That's not my Bob. And she's like laughing and crying at the same time. It's pretty trippy because that actually feels real. But Ethel and Lynn run back to the trailer and real quick, they both end up shot by Mars because basically they bust in. He turns around, shoots 
I think he shoots Ethel first and then he shoots Lynn once and then she picks up this knife and stabs him in the thigh and then he shoots her again. And that, cause that's what they're doing. They've got the baby. They were raiding all the food and they got the ammo. So they take off. It's like, let's just get what we came for. I think is what he turns around and says to Pluto. So now all their supplies are gone. Oh, and the baby's gone too. So they've run off with the baby. And this is when we see Pluto radio to Mercury up on the rocks. And it's still dark and shit, but you can see him up there. And uh, Mercury's, is that a baby? Because the way Locke <laughs> plays it is just way over the top. It's student bodies. Straight <laughs> up. 100%. And uh, he's like, maybe I make a joke and tell him I'm going to eat the toes first. You think he'll <laughs> laugh? Or something like that. It's just, it's really bad. And you're really wanting something bad to happen to him because he's just annoying. Or at least that's me. Thank God there's payoff. And Beast is sneaking up behind him and fucking jumps and knocks him off the cliff. <laughs> and the way this is shot, one, Beast sees the radio. And then we cut away from Beast. <laughs> and Pluto's looking around. <laughs> and Mar- Mars is like, what's wrong with you? Like, I thought I heard rocks. You got rocks in your head. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> Honestly, they play them like they're fucking inbred. Yeah. But I guess it's supposed to be, I mean, I think they specifically said mama was like a junkie prostitute, right? Yeah. The whore nobody would miss. So, I mean, they were literally raised heavily uneducated. I guess I want to point out, by the way, mama is in a cave chugging the whiskey they stole from the Air Force Base. The entire fucking movie plaster drunk. Yes. She's got like two lines of dialogue in the whole movie. You just see her laying there like fucking Cleopatra (laughs) chugging whiskey. Oh, but they get back to the cave and Jupiter tells Ruby that he heard her talking to Fred and he fixed Fred. He fixed him good. Mm, I like fixing people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what he says. (laughs) I swear it's almost exactly that. Um, so Pluto and Mars come in with the turkey. I mean the baby. <laughs> Jesus that's, Christ. That's when they call it their their uh, their Thanksgiving turkey. And Beast, being so smart, brings Mercury's radio to the trailer. <laughs> and this radio is like the size of the dog's head. I mean, they're handheld, but it's the 70s. They're fucking ginormous. Like the antenna are five feet long when they pull them out and shit. Some mass shit. So we're trying to yes. Anyways, so over this radio, they hear Pluto tell Jupiter that Mercury is dead and the dog did it. Papa Jupiter about to be mad. So another, it's like I said, these quick cuts back and forth. Do they call, they call it the beast from hell or something like that? Yeah, the devil dog. Yeah, the devil dog. That's what it is. So back at the cave, Jupiter tells Bob's corpse a list of fucked up things. I'll see the wind blow your dried up seeds away. The heart of your stinking memory. I eat the brains of your kids, kids. I'm in Europe. All while he's eating Bob's leg. <laughs> and I do want to point out, and this may be a scene for me and you to talk about, they very briefly show his face. The burn up face. Show one tight shot of the eyeball and then one quick shot of the face. Correct. Okay. I just realized something, though, that's really interesting. Do you watch Walking Dead? Not since it turned into a fucking soap opera, so not past. I, well, that's a lie. I made it all the way up to Glenn getting killed. Do you remember a little Bob? Bit after. Bob was like their medic, and he had like the military jacket and tainted meat. If I say tainted meat, does that ring a bell? Ah, because they eat the his legs. Yeah, which are tainted meat, and his name's Bob. 
Hey. <laughs> I just made that connection. <laughs> and that's not the same in the comic books. They did that just for the show. So that might okay. have been a Hills Have Eyes throwbacks. Because Dale, the RV driver that dies in like season two. Yeah. In the comic book, he's the one that ends up getting infected because he makes it way longer in the comic book. Okay. And he's like, tainted meat, tainted meat while they're fucking eating them. Uh, but they turned it to Bob and stuff in the show. And I, Bob might even been added for the show. And I know I like just kind of derailed this whole fucking <laughs> thing, but they eat Bob's leg. And in here, they're eating Bob's leg. It's got to be a fucking throwback, right? I'm totally with you on that. And see, that's why it's fun sometimes when we derail because it's things like that. So the next morning, Doug is out scouting with Beast. Bobby and Brenda wake up to a dead mom because she wasn't dead yet. Lynn's dead, dead. Um, but mom was mom, mom was fading, yeah. So Doug's calling for help on the radio. And you got to think of where Doug's at right now. So Doug's baby is gone. His wife's dead. And he was, wasn't around for the first bit and then came back. We hadn't really seen him a lot. And they play with his character in the remake more like he's the liberal pussy. And I'm just saying that because that's what they, they do to his character in the remake. And he has to be the one to turn and take charge. But he's actually surprisingly calm in all this, but he's focused. So yeah. the, the actor's pretty good. Like some of this stuff, because like he's sitting there talking to Ethel while she's dying. And uh, she's like, oh, the trailer's so small. When it gets trashy, it looks so trashy. Is Lynn asleep? And he's like, yeah, Lynn's asleep. And yeah. Like, it's Those scenes he's good at. Um, when he decides he's going to strike and go get the baby back, though, he's like fucking talking to the dog. Like it's Lassie <laughs> and he's making a plan with beast for beast to go in and save the fucking day. I know. Okay. So it's like, I'm waiting on like dun, 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 for fucking music to kick in the bionic dog to go running in. It's fucking a little off, but <laughs> so, Oh, I fucked up in my notes here. This is not Doug. This is Bobby that does this. Bobby is calling out on the radio, trying to get help. And someone hears him and asks, what's your defensive capabilities? It's like, um, we've got one gun and two bullets left. (laughs) All right. What you're going to need to do is stand on your head, stand on your head. Is that a code? It's like, stand on your head with your thumbs up your asses. (laughs) And we see that it's Pluto on the radio fucking with them. So Doug eventually makes it to the cave and he hears the pack on or makes it near the cave actually. And he hears the pack on the radio. And he, this is when he does what you're talking about. He sends beast back towards the trailer to help. Cause he's like, beast, it's all on you now. You need to go that way. <laughs> this <laughs> instantly shit. turned into a fucking Nick jr. PG spy kids movie for my kids. So we end up seeing Pluto and Papa Jupiter. And they're kind of walking in between these bushes. And Beast is kind of stalking him from behind and being quiet and waiting. And uh, Papa Jupiter gets pretty far ahead of Pluto. And all of a sudden, Beast runs up and starts ripping out his fucking Achilles tendon. And supposedly, that injury, at least, was from a nightmare Wes Craven had about either the lid of a tin can or a flattened tin can being kicked and cutting someone's Achilles tendon open. Damn. And that's why he put that in there, supposedly. It's a fucked up scene. I don't mean like, I mean, it's not like last house and left rape fucked up, but it's like when you see it split open yeah. and it's like, Oh no, you know, you're like, Oh, that's fucking gross. Yeah. It looks aside from the blood being too red. It, it looks really good. Yeah. And that really was Michael Berryman for that. And the next scene, they had a, a wad of leather. Then it's like, this, this dog is trained to bite this. 
and jerk it around until I tell it to stop. It won't bite anything else. Remain calm. <laughs> I'm sure he was a perfect gentleman about it after seeing Weird I think, Science. I think, and I think this Wrangler was a different Wrangler than the snake guy because they talked about him being a scary looking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but Papa sees this going on and he shoots and scares Beast away. And he gets so pissed off, he radios to Mars, kill the baby. Yeah. So Mars gets the baby from Ruby, only to discover it's a pig. And Ruby's fucking taken off with the actual baby. Because Ruby doesn't seem to be part of the pack. Ruby seems to have gotten sucked into the pack. Like she was a runaway girl or something. And I think they even allude to that. It's a little too on the nose when all the children are named after planets. And then she got a normal name. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Now, here's where things get dark. Craven wanted the baby to die. Yes, I did and read that. The cast and crew was like, if you don't get, all, get over that and let the baby live, we walk. That it was basic threatened mutiny. I don't do well with children dying in films, so I'm glad that wasn't a part of it. I don't either, but I think between this and Last House, it really gives you an idea of how dark he wanted to go. But he was doing a, a retelling of an older story. There's older works of like people eating the infants of their enemies in front of them and shit. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, some of that, it's okay to read this. Just don't watch a movie. Um, bullshit. But at any rate, so as Ruby's running off with the baby, she runs into Doug. Mars is given chase. Meanwhile, back at the trailer, Brenda and Bobby set a trap with mom, kind of like the pack did with dad. (laughs) And (laughs) it's actually an ingenious trap. What does she say, though? Like, how strong is this wire? And he's like, strong enough. What do you want to do? I'm like, it's kind of out of order, but okay. Yeah, something like that. Because we see them. They're stretching out the uh, some kind of wire. It's like tow cable or something, right? Yeah. And they've got the car jacked up a little bit because Doug had found some shit when he went off looking. Because he came back with, like, a handful of supplies. Like, right. So they were maybe going to try to fix the car. Earlier in the film, he ripped the tire off and tried to burn it, also hoping the Air Force would see the fire, like an yes. SOS. So the tire's already ripped off the rim on the car as well. Yeah, so the rim's up off the ground, but it's still there, and they're they're running the wire to it, and you, know, you can put two and two together, but when it actually happens, it's pretty cool. But we see Beast go, go back to finish off Pluto. <laughs> but Pluto's walking around, hobbling around, and he thinks he sees something in the bushes. And he's ready. He's ready for Beast this time. And it's a bunny. <laughs> it's that same goddamn bunny from the beginning, I'm telling you. And he's excited because he's going to eat bunny. <laughs> and he goes to pounce on the bunny. And that's when Beast fucking attacks like a velociraptor. Clever girl. Because <laughs> you never know Beast is coming until he strikes, right? <laughs> yes. And he rips out Pluto's throat. Meanwhile, Jupiter is taking the mom bait. <laughs> and what it is, is, they've got a snare set up in front of her. So it snares Papa Jupiter. They're gassing it on the wagon. Fucking, he's flying across the desert floor. This actually looked quite violent for whatever actor or stuntman did this. There's a stuntman involved. <laughs> and I don't, they didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> he gets pulled halfway, and the fucking wagon runs out of gas. It's like, oh shit, what are we going to do now? We see him go in the trailer and shut the door and tape matches to the inside of the door. And we see that the strike thing is taped onto the floor as well, and there's two open cans of propane. And they go, get out, shut the door. So booby trapping once again. Right. He actually says to Brenda, he's like, hold your breath as they open the door and run in. Yeah. And they run off. Papa Jupiter runs up to the door and he starts sniffing. 
And you're already like, oh, fuck, man, he ain't going to fall for this. And then we get a reverse shot of them off in the distance watching the trailer, and we get big bada boom. (laughs) (laughs) But Bobby wants to go back and make sure. He goes running back, and Brenda, which by the end of it, she gets a little too hysterical. But the problem is, is he's that emotionally unstable the whole time, and it's insufferable. I mean, ever since the rape, she's like out of it. Yeah. Like a huge part of the movie. She's like completely disconnected from the rest of the world. Yeah. I don't know why I wanted to play with that so much. Like, well, how that damages a girl after the fact. Because I nothing in his upbringing showed, you know what I mean? Like where that was coming from. You know what I mean? I mean, when you see interviews with him on making Last House on the Left, which is, honestly, I did more research on that one because that was my movie for this episode. Yeah. He was wanting to show the real horrors of life. Yeah. Like he said, the violence of Nam that people don't see on television because that's what's truly terrifying. What's more fucking terrifying than rape. True. I don't know why I went back to it in this one. That's what I was getting at. Like, why did we have to do this? At least she lives, but at any rate, I don't know why I'm getting hung up on that. Cause it it is interesting that he went straight to rape in his next movie. Not straight. I mean, it wasn't rape was a more prominent plot point in last house, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, the young, attractive girl, in this movie, immediately gets fucking raped. Like the first time the bad guys encounter. And he wanted the baby to die, too. <laughs> I was talking about how nice of a guy he was earlier. <laughs> and the fucking twinkle in his eye like old St. Nick. And that fucking just gentle smile. And I might want to take all that back. <laughs> he might be the thing in nightmares. <laughs> but Bobby goes back just to make sure. And he's going through the rubble. And Jupiter comes out of nowhere and fucking jumps on him. But he ends up putting two in his chest, the last two bullets that he had. And Papa Jupiter is no more. Meanwhile, Doug. (laughs) So you got to remember what's happening back in the woods. So we had Ruby running off with the baby and Doug's still out there. And Mars was chasing after Ruby with a baby. So we end up with Doug and Mars and Doug's like from a few feet away, throwing rocks at Mars. (laughs) Mars like falls. He gets them like two or three times. But Doug ends up getting trapped in this like crevasse. And this is where the rattlesnake thing happened, actually, because he goes, he's trying to set a booby trap, basically, where he's hiding the knife in the crevasse. He's going to wait there and let Mars charge him. And he goes to check. This is my read on it, just from how it was cut. He goes to check on the knife and there's a fucking rattlesnake there. This was the shot where they lost the rattlesnake. (laughs) So the whole crew is in this narrow little thing and can't find the rattlesnake. I'm just thinking about that animal handler's day at work. So I thought I lost my work keys the other day. Okay. And I mean, they're important keys. And in the back of my head, I'm like, they're probably on my key ring at my house. Cause it was the weekend and I just didn't grab them this morning. But the front of my head was like, I know I had them. Okay. And I'm like, I lost these work keys. This is a terrible day. Could you imagine if you lost a fucking rattlesnake at work? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of questions I want to ask leading up to that, but I don't want to have any part of that. And they said that the snake wasn't defanged or milked. Jesus Christ. Yeah. This was a legit fucking rattlesnake. I do want to alleviate everyone's stress, though, of this scenario. My keys were on the ring at my house when I got home. And they weren't a rattlesnake. (laughs) No. But at any rate. So just as Mars is coming up on him, he hears the baby crying. So he takes off and leaves Doug there. Doug gives chase, jumps on him. They both end up on the ground. Mars has this big ass knife he's trying to stab Doug with. 
Doug ends up ripping the bandage off of his leg where he had gotten stabbed earlier by Lynn. Just sticking his fucking finger in that hole. It's a, uh, it's a pretty generic scene for most movies. Like they do that a lot in films, but it always works. But the thing is, is back when Papa was eating, uh, Kentucky Fried Bob, uh, (laughs) in the middle of his saying all this shit, just like your blood took my blood. I'm going to watch your seeds dry up and blow away. When he's saying all this shit, he's also talking to Mars and he's like, that's a good place to stab somebody, not a good place for you to get stabbed. Right. And the whole idea is like, this motherfucker should be bleeding out real fast. I just got to survive long enough. Just when you eat that other white meat, <laughs> you get super strength. I'm not saying everybody should resort to cannibalism. <laughs> I'm just saying in this particular scenario, shit happens. They don't test for that in the Olympics, though. <laughs> oh, my God. How do you test the fucking horse in the race for this? Was the horse eating other horse? Transfer its life essence. Yes. But what happens is Ruby ends up grabbing the rattlesnake. And this is the whole thing where Locke said, you know, I'll do it if you'll do it. And supposedly he was a bitch about it and just barely picked it up and dropped it. But when you see her with the stick pinning the snake and grabbing it, supposedly that's all legit her real rattlesnake. That gets him off Doug. For good. (laughs) Yeah. And now he's fixing to be gone for good because fucking Doug grabs his knife jumps up on top of him and just savagely stabs the shit out of his chest. And we get a fade to red (laughs) and then credits. And it's the whole idea that was being played with was the kind of the same idea that was played with in last house that the savage evil people get their comeuppance, but the people that do it to them are the normal people who have to act just as savage as them to get back at them. And more so in this with it going back to the legend that it was pulled from, that the, it wasn't that they ate people that he was intrigued by. It was that they were tortured to death once they were caught. Right. And how was one any better than the other? Um, the remake's more fun. Yeah, I just said that. I haven't seen it in forever, but just rewatching some clips from it, it's more intense. It's more modern. It's the same story. They shove a little bit too much politics in it. Okay. Um, they make it an actual nuclear test site instead of just a bombing range and former nuclear test site. I don't know. Like, the formula worked for me in Last House. I mean, Last House doesn't have a whole lot of replayability in me just because of the disturbing nature of it. Yeah. But I can rewatch it every now and then. I'm not a huge Hills Have Eyes fan. I'm not either. And the the uneducated dialogue of the pack is a little much. The way the jokes are kind of forced in there is a little much. Bobby, I could have done without. Really? It's it's like cash grab sequel territory to me. It's like, it, we got Wes Craven, let's do something. Well, see, and that's the thing, because like, Peter Locke was like, do a sequel to Last House. You know, it's like, you need to do this. And then he's like, after they did this, he's like, do a sequel to this. I just think Locke was trying to get his name out there and not in uh, porn. Yeah. Um, But the ideas, the, the important part for me is the ideas that Craven was playing with in the story. And that part's good. Definitely I, dark themes. Yeah. This is one of those movies that it's not often that the classics that are so beloved among horror fans are lost on time to me, but this one could just be lost in time on me. I did see it might even been post 2000 because okay. at least the late nineties, maybe the time gap killed it for me. I don't know. Usually time doesn't affect a movie to me, right? Like usually I can still appreciate it for what it is, but I don't know when I just saw this one, it didn't even feel like Craven to me. 
most of the actors weren't memorable. Even Dee yeah. Wallace. I mean, this was this one of our earlier movies, right? Yeah, this is like her second film. So she wasn't that memorable in it like she is in a lot of the other movies I've seen her in. The bad guys, like I sometimes I mix up their names. Like Barryman's easy to remember, but it's because of weird science, not because of this. Yeah, he's so recognizable. And I don't know. I just, I hate saying it because I know this is such a big classic among so many fans, but this one's just a miss for me for the most part. Yeah. I I see this through rose colored glasses because I see the themes it was playing with more so than the movie. Totally agree about the movie. Like I said, the remake, modernized, same story, better. One more thing I do have to throw. You brought up Barryman again. And I, okay. there's something I meant to throw in here. So there was a screening that he was at. And a woman like behind <laughs> him this. or beside him was like, this movie is sick and disgusting or something like that. And he turns around to the woman and goes, yeah, this movie's sick or whatever she said. He said it right back in her face. He just seems like a nice guy and a general giant. And I hate saying that about people that I don't know that much about. because <laughs> That's something bad that I never heard about. But like. Yeah. Any interview and like goofy thing like that I heard, he seems funny. It always makes me think of his weird science character. And he's like, I'm so sorry for the damage yeah. that we've done. You people like, have a lovely home. <laughs> yeah, that like to me comes off as the real him. And I mean, I could be completely just fucking out there, but it, it's it's a nice touch. Like I said, he's definitely the more memorable character to me in that movie. Yeah. Him and D. Wallace just because she's D. fucking Wallace. Yeah. And the, the lady who played Ethel, I think she was good too. But that's about it. Doug was okay. Baby did all right. And Beast is amazing because he can fucking hear people and fucking carry radios. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like it was a, it's definitely a different step for him after Last House. Yeah. I mean, we're here to talk about the director and we talk about the peaks and valleys and we were talking about more like hits and misses. Yeah. But like his style to me kind of is all over the place too. And I don't know how much studio intervention or producer intervention in this case had to do with it. I think this was a bunch of people who didn't know what the hell they were doing out in miserable conditions trying to make a movie. But these two movies were merely a stepping stone in Wes Craven's career. So on the next episode, we're going to cover four more movies. I want to hear you scream. We're going to do Swamp Thing, Serpent in the Rainbow, Deadly Blessing, and My Soul to Take. But like usual, guys, thank you for tuning in. Please keep coming back every episode. Don't forget to send your comments and questions to sbspodcast at gmail.com. Give us a follow at sbspodcast on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening. Some fresh air and sun